燃え上がれガンダムはい。
Like, if you didn't know Gundam, that's what you would think. They're all in giant mech suits. The new type is, oh, I assume that's Gundam Mark II. That's what I thought, because I think it's impossible to not know the, the words Gundam and new type. It's out there in the ether. Yeah. And then I'm like, oh, 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 that's what, okay. This series is not what I thought it was. Wow. Yeah, it, it is, because when I watched it the first time, I was in the same boat of, like, I knew that there was a concept called new type that was related to Gundam. I didn't know if it was in the original Gundam show or if that was a different Gundam thing. I didn't know if it was a kind of mech or what. Yes, but it is new type is a huge thing in Universal Century Gundam. Um, and, and we are finally now... It, they have been planting the seeds along the way. Like the first time they are, they, it's hinted at is way back, I think in episode nine is the first time it gets sort of hinted at. Um, but yes, now I can just say with the words new type and not be afraid of spoiling shit. Well, thank you. I, I, now I've looked at this, I'm like, that must have taken restraint. But I've thought that for a lot of things now that I'm hitting this batch of episodes. Just like Char's motivations and things like that, mm-hmm. you know? Um, or Char's real name and all those sorts of things. It's, uh, it's a wild set of episodes. And man... I just, I'm so happy we're watching it. This is quickly becoming one of my favorite podcasts to record because it's also a show that it's really good to have someone to talk to and process what's going on. Yeah, it's it's dense. There's a lot of stuff. Um, and so I think for this episode of Weekly Suit Gundam, probably the easiest way to tackle this batch is kind of what we did for part two, where I think it's probably easiest to chunk these episodes together because most of these are like three to four long episode arcs, really, which is something that Gundam hasn't done that much of. Generally, Gundam has had very, very standalone episodes that fit into big, like, 13-episode arcs, like, bit by bit, where this feels like it's more of each episode is still standalone. We've got a couple of, like, maybe more two-parters, like The Glory of Solomon and Big Zam's Last Stand and Duel in Texas and Sharon Sailor are definitely more two-part kind of episodes. Um, but all of these definitely are fitting into these kind of tighter three to four episode chunks. Yeah, I mean, and I was surprised to see there is a straight up two parter here with right uh, with um, uh, the glory of Solomon and then Big Zam's last stand, as you said. Is there's a battle left unfinished, which is I th- really the only time Gundam has done that so far. Uh, and then the last two are kind of obviously connected, but it's not quite that clear. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it it does work in that sense because the overall goal of these episodes is is the movement through space. I mean, we're we're basically in the last section of the military campaign against Zeon. Yeah. Um, and this whole section is being it's it starts with Amaro and friends getting jumped into the military. Basically, they all get ranks and they are all officially military members now. It is them meeting up with the fleet. And the battle uh, at Solomon, and then some of the aftermath with that. But uh, yes, I think the way it works in little arcs is actually very effective. Um, and it's good to start at the beginning there, because the first little arc, which centers around the character Kai, is mm-hmm. incredibly effective. Yes, so we have uh, our first three episodes to talk about today. Episode 26, Shaw Returns. 27, A Spy on Board. And 28, Across the Atlantic Ocean. This is like the... It's the Northern Ireland and Miharu uh, section. So after the Battle of Edessa, the White Base has gone to Northern Ireland for repairs and to get orders. Um, General Revel is there also. So you have some scenes of like all the people on the White Base getting promotions and they're getting orders. And General Revel is like shaking hands with people and all that kind of stuff. And all the while, um, we, we focus in on Kai and his sort of arc of... 
he he kind of has to have his coming home moment that Amuro had of he leaves the white base. He has to kind of like he gets this choice of whether or not he wants to voluntarily be a member of the white base or whether or not he wants to ditch it and live his own life. And then he meets Miharu and he has his little adventure. And this is one of my favorite like little sections of Gundam because I, I really like whenever Gundam has this opportunity to focus in on one of its side characters. And Kai is a character that has been with us the whole time. But they up till this point, they don't really have a strong lens on him the way they will occasionally like. Here's an episode where Sayla has a lot of stuff. Here's an episode where Bright has a lot of stuff. We didn't really have that with Kai. And so they have this nice little arc with him. Uh, that I think is really, really good. Yes, and we'll get to the Kai and Miharu stuff, because all of that is indeed excellent. But I also just love the setting of these three episodes, with it being in Northern Ireland, it's built around, like, ocean and, like, naval combat more yes. than any other episode of Gun. Well, all of it is naval, but it's usually sky or space naval, not literally on the water. And so you have all of the Xeon mobile suits that are just, like, they're, like, submarines, and you have the Gundam trying to fight underwater. And I look back at that list of episodes, and I can't believe this was only three episodes. Mm-hmm. That The first episode alone, Shar Returns, which does not have much to do with Shar at all. <laughs> Which is fine, but it's like, he's he returns in like one scene. But like that episode, so much happens in terms of everybody getting their ranks and getting commissioned. And all the stuff with the the first underwater battle and the white base getting repaired. And it's, it. I remembered that being like two or three episodes. Because you also meet, they you meet Miharu there and Kai runs into her before we ever learn her name. But Miharu, when I look back, she's only in three episodes. That's insane to me. And I know we've said this multiple times and I should be prepared for this with Gundam now. But again, the storytelling economy is so tight, it still kind of blows my mind. It feels like it's working outside of the normal narrative space-time continuum. Yeah, it, it because it definitely, you look back on the Northern Ireland stuff and it feels like that's like a season of a TV show is what it feels like. It's That's not a small three-episode arc in this 43-episode anime. And yeah, so it's... Which is true of, like, most of the stuff here. And it is always amazing to me. As someone who has watched through the show twice, like, I still have that element of it of, like, holy shit. Like, you know, especially coming close to the end, realizing, remembering all the stuff that has to happen in the next seven episodes. In my mind, is like, that's like ten episodes. It has to be. No other anime would be able to accomplish that in anything less than ten episodes. Most anime would have to have, like, twenty episodes to do some of this stuff. Um, and Gundam does it in like three to five and it's yeah the the storytelling economy is ferocious and yet they always find a time for those little tiny moments that I love like um, I love the scene where Amuro catches Kai leaving the base and Amuro goes and gets his fucking little toolbox and yes. runs up to give it to Kai and is like hey Kai like this is a parting gift like you're gonna need you can sell it to get some money and Amuro is just such a sweet little kid when he is given an opportunity to not be like a fucking killing machine he's just such a nice little boy and it, I love those little moments. And then I love Kai's return where he brings it back and in just the most Kai fashion imaginable says, ah, that didn't sell for anything. That was worthless, Amuro. And yet I think it endears Amuro to him even more because yes. it's, it's, it's Kai's way of saying thank you, really. Yes. But no, beautiful, beautiful moment and scene between those two there and, and both bookends of that. But yeah, I mean, uh, before we talk about Kai, I do just because this stuff fascinates me, I want to talk about their commissioned ranks. Because mm-hmm. I thought that was really interesting. That Bright, who was an Ensign, which this is all so funny that Bright, he's a captain because he is the leader of a ship. Like in, in naval tradition, like if you are the commanding officer of a ship, you are called captain, even if that is not your rank. 
he's a captain before he's even a commissioned officer because he doesn't become a commissioned officer until I think the previous batch of episodes when they name him Ensign, yeah. which is the lowest rank of a commissioned officer. And then in this one, he is lieutenant. He is Bright Chewy, which is great. Uh, Chewy is the best name for. It. I love that word in Japanese. Yeah, yeah. We've so had good. a couple like Matilda was Matilda Chewy, and yes, yes, it's a good, it's a good sound to throw at the end of a, a name. And I know we'll meet this character later, but I just have to say it now. Strega Chewy is my favorite name in Gundam. It's it, like that in Job John, how they say it in yeah. Japanese. Strega Chewy is so good. We'll get to yes. him later. Um, but yeah, so he becomes a lieutenant. Uh, I think um, Mirai, what does she become? She's a... I forget. She, she's pretty high, right? She's pretty high. Sela's pretty high. Um, Frau Bo becomes a seaman, I think. Yes. Something like the equivalent of that. And then... Uh, Almero becomes chief petty officer, which is pretty good for him. You know, yeah, pretty good for just starting out. Going for someone who was a civilian that like had access to military secrets that could have had him executed. Um, to going from that to being uh, chief petty officer, that's a fucking big jump. You know? It is a big he's, jump. He's almost he's almost at the same level as Master Chief from Halo. He's almost In, there. Yes. Um, so that's pretty good for him. And you've got, I think most of the, the pilots become petty officers for second class. I think Kai is like second class. Yeah. And in the midst of this, you also get, uh, they promoted Ryu up to, what was it? Um, Everybody who died um, gets two ranks up right. from whatever they were. So I think he became like one up from lieutenant is what it is. Because he jumps bright. And... That's And then that leads to a really interesting scene where Amuro kind of... like Because Amuro has this really nice moment where he's looking at the certificate for his chief petty officer status. And he says, I haven't gotten something like this since grade school or something like that. And he's yeah. thinking about it. And he's like, there's this internal debate. Am I proud or am I kind of weirded out by this, right? And then he hears that Ryu got promoted up. And it's like, well, wait, that's all you did? Like, he fucking died for us and he gets two promotions and that's it? And, you know... um, General Revel and even Bright are just kind of like, yeah, that's what happens. And Amuro is like, that's insane. This is nuts. And that's a really powerful moment too because it shines a light on like, this is a significant moment for our crew. In theory, this is all something to be very proud of, being promoted like that. And then you hear it with Ryu and if you are an outsider like Amuro, you realize, no, wait, that is kind of nuts. They, they didn't actually do anything to honor him there. Yeah, he just sort of flips out. And he says this, like, you, you know, you don't even say, like, thank you or anything. You just, like, because it's just some random officer that's giving it out. And it's just, like, you don't give us anything. All you, it, It's, like, there's nothing more useless in the middle of this war where everything is, like, just fucked. And there's, like, the chain of command is all fucked up and crazy. And so there's no, there's, even for the normal military people, there's very little sense of, like, the standard military hierarchy being something that is intact and important. Uh, but especially for the people on the white base, what the fuck does it matter? Like, Amro's not actually a soldier, really, properly. Like, he just kind of, as you said earlier, he got jumped into the military. And so from his perspective, all of the kind of the decorum is utterly pointless because this is not the life he chose. Like, I, you can't, like, imagine that, like, Amro immediately after the one-year war goes and, like, yeah, like, great, military, awesome, I'm gonna officially enlist and become a Federation, whatever, you know, like, that's not clearly the thing that he's interested in. He's just stuck in this bizarre scenario and they give him a fucking piece of paper and so, of course, he's gonna get mad about it. Yeah, no, good scene and I just wanted to mention that, but the star of the show here is Kai and, of course, uh, Miharu, 
who I do like in that first episode that Miharu is just kind of around the fringes. And mm-hmm. it's a thing, this is part of Gundam's storytelling economy, is that single scenes often do many different things. And so you can have a scene where they're like passing through the base and getting to where they're going and Miharu will be out there with her flowers. And at first you just think she's a person out in the world in this kind of dilapidated town who's selling flowers. You get the sense that she's up to something. You get the sense that Kai is into her. But those scenes are not like stopping to introduce Miharu. Yes, exactly. So you, And it's really important that you just get familiarized with what she looks like and her basic sort of role of this woman who's just like trying to sell random goods to these soldiers who's clearly very poor and has something to take care of. So you already have the basic setup for that character done before you really meet her properly in episode 27. Yes. Um, and then, before we get to episode 27, just talk about the... Is the what's the name for like the underwater Zakus they're using? Um, so there's a couple of new mobile suits we get introduced. Because this is also the section where... Um, we find out that Zeon has just sort of pushed every single prototype mobile suit they had development in development because of the Gundam. They've just sort of pushed all of those out there. So we get this is like the beginning of the spree of a bunch of new mobile suits and mobile armors. And they're that we so get. good. They're all so good. We'll get they're to my favorite good. one. My favorite one is in episode 37. We'll talk about that. But there's yes. a lot. Yes, so um, the underwater ones we get are, we get the Gog, which that's the most Zaku-esque. It's like kind of just the whatever throwaway one. Also, also... Gogu is great for an underwater mobile suit. Yes, the Gogu is really good. And then we also get uh, the Zagok, which is the bigger, kind of bulkier one that has the big fucking claws that eventually Char gets his uh, red Zagok later on. And so we have that. there. I think there's also the Zok, I think that's the one that pops up in Jaburo. That's like the big, weird green one with a bunch of missiles on it. But yeah, we have this whole class now of like aquatic Xeon mobile suits that are starting to be deployed. And they're so good. Like, you know, I love the Gundam and I love the the Federation mobile suits. They look really cool and fun. The Xeon mobile suits are where it's at. I love Mm -hmm. every single goddamn one of them from the original Zaku all the way up to these to the ones we're going to get in the later episodes. They are just so creative and full of personality. And I love and like I love all the rounded edges and I love how like the Gog and all those and the Zgok look genuinely amphibious. Like I want to meet in this show the Xeon mobile suit designer and what a fucking madman that person is because they're it feels like they're like I don't know the like the fucking Johnny Ive of 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 mobile suits where they're like we're gonna make it look really cool and like they're putting that above everything else because oftentimes they're not the best mobile suits but they do look really good they look really good they have yeah i i like they have like their one like red eye motif that they're like this is our thing this is like the zeon thing we put a big red eye on all of our mobile suits because it looks very cool i also really like with the aquatic mobile suits they all have like those big rounded tops and then they have little holes that have like little torpedoes so when they're underwater they basically become like really fast submarines and they just shoot torpedoes at the top of their head which is a really like well thought out i think design element of why these things are really effective underwater is they're able to effectively without like literally transforming they practically transform into underwater vehicles when they're underwater and then when they're on land they can do the whole mobile suit thing and stand on two legs Yes, it's very cool. But Miharu, poor Miharu. Yeah, so she's she's our a Zeon spy who is just trying to take care of her her little brother and little sister. Um, and the, I love all like just all the stuff of of Kai leaving the base, 
running into her, going up to the cabin with her. And Kai, like, immediately knows what's really going on. And I love that whole dynamic of him, you know, he checks her, like, picnic basket thing with all her goodies in it that she's trying to sell. And underneath it, she has a gun. And he just says, like, oh, well, yep, this isn't good. Um, And... That whole process of Kai understanding the situation that Miharu is in and helping her just enough that, like, she can kind of support and keep on going on, but obviously trying to make it so that he doesn't help her enough that it's going to jeopardize the white base in any way. Like, that whole dynamic and seeing, like, the compassion that Kai has in this situation is really good. And it's 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 a really good detail um, that kind of helps flesh out Kai... Um, that who's a character that's always been kind of a jerk, but you've always told could tell he's kind of the jerk with a heart of gold character, and seeing him removed from everything else it really highlights that aspect of his character. But in these two episodes, what I find most compelling is that he's not careful enough about like yes. the white base, like, and he is so disillusioned that I think he doesn't know where his loyalties lie. Not that like he's going to defect to Zeon; he's not doing that. But he's genuinely disillusioned to the point of like, fuck it, I'll go help my friends because they are in immediate danger. But then it's over and I'm still not going to rat out Miharu. I'm not going to like try to get her onto our side. I, you know, he doesn't like try to get her to defect or anything like that. He just doesn't, he doesn't stop her and he doesn't stop them. And he lets her on the ship and it ultimately it does result in a big battle. It does ultimately result in her death. And he is very laissez-faire about it. And I feel like up until, you know, near the end of that third episode when he jumps back in the gun cannon and everything, and, and he and, I guess they're in a different suit at that point, but he and, and Miharu go out together and, and fight for the white base, I feel like he doesn't genuinely know where his loyalties lie and whether or not this is something he truly cares about. And you can feel that conflict working on him through all three episodes because he is so fed up with this shit, and I understand why he's fed up with this shit. And I think that's really compelling because it's it's a it's a different arc than Amaro's. Like when Amaro left and had his coming home moment, or in the next set of episodes when he uh, deserts for a little while, he never stops fighting for the Federation. Like in terms of like trying to do what the Federation wants in a broad sense, Kai is like, I fuck all this shit. I'm done, and that's really interesting to me. Yeah, they, if if. Zeon had not chosen that moment to attack the harbor and Kai just could directly see everybody in danger because Kai is super important because he's they don't after they lost Ryu they don't have enough people to properly pilot all the machines they have because Sela pilots the, the G-Fighter Amuro's on the Gundam Hayato's on the gun tank Kai is the only other person that can really pilot the gun cannon I think Job John technically can pilot some of those things but he's Job John he's not you know He's not good enough to, like, be someone you can actually rely on. Um, So him kind of seeing that and seeing... I think he realizes, like, that he is really needed on the white base, even if the whole context of what they're doing and the fact that they're just being kind of jerked around by the Federation uh, brass is he's right to be fed up with all that stuff. I like that moment when he's standing on the hill and seeing the white base under attack, and he's just like oh, come on, guys, you can do better than this. And he just runs down the hill, gets in, gets into the gun tank. And then there's a really good sequence in that fight of Amuro fighting. I think it's the first is Zagok. He fights underwater. And then Amuro jumps out of the water in the Gundam. And Kai's waiting there with the gun tank for the Zagok to follow him and then shoots the Zagok. And then Amuro comes down and cuts in half with the Gundam. There's some nice, like, team play that starts happening there. Yes. And also all the animation in this stretch 
it's always good on Gundam. I feel like these 13 episodes have some of the best animation, and I love all the stuff in Northern Ireland, like the colors on the hills and the specific sky tones they choose, and then everything with the water. It's gorgeous. Yeah, they definitely get to play with a different color palette, which is nice, because it, it, it captures that sense of it's very green, but the sky is almost always overcast, and so it definitely captures that kind of England, Ireland kind of... Um, you know, out in the countryside kind of look. And it is a very different aesthetic from space or the desert, which is most of where Gundam is in. Yes. And then talking about Miharu, you know, this show is never exactly subtle with foreshadowing death. And that's, I think, one of the ways actually it's good at killing characters is it sets the groundwork for it to mean something. It is not just about shocking you. But boy... When Miharu goes home and she has these young orphan children with her and they're her little, they're her siblings and she has to say goodbye because she's going to have to leave for a while, but here's some money. Take care of yourselves, kids. I was just head in my hands like, oh God, what is, Tomino, you motherfucker, what are you going to mm-hmm. do to this woman? She doesn't deserve it. And um, what he does to Miharu is, I think, the best executed death sequence in Gundam so far. I don't know if it's the absolute most impactful, just because like someone like Ryu or Matilda we've known longer. But in terms of, like, I think, the, the cinematic qualities of it, holy fuck. Yeah, cause, just because the whole scenario is so unique because you know we're very accustomed to in media the like i'm gonna fly in and sacrifice myself to like keep you alive kind of death that that ryu has but the the, it's the meaninglessness of miharu's death which is basically an accident because they get into the gun parry which is the big kind of gunship um that's loaded up with torpedoes and the torpedo gets stuck and miharu's with kai and so she goes to like manually operate the lever because the uh, oh, it's because the electrical circuits get shot out, and so they have to manually release the torpedoes. But since she's never done that before, she has no training. She clearly does not know that like you have to strap yourself in or something like you have to attach yourself to the gun parry if you're launching the torpedoes, or you're just going to get knocked away by the blowback um, and the exhaust. And that's exactly what happens. And she just gets knocked out of the side of the gun parry. It's another instance of this big dramatic death happening and nobody realizing for like a solid three to five minutes of the show. Like you see Miharu get flown out of the side of the gun parry. You like see her like fall away and Kai, but the, the torpedo hits its mark. And so Kai is celebrating and is flying the gun parry back. And then it cuts to Kai uh, crying on the floor of the white base, having discovered that she's not there anymore. And just that series of shots. It's two or three shots. Yeah. But she fires the cannon, she gets flung out, and then it is a shot of the gun parry and her like hovering over the water in slow motion as she's falling. And that's it. And it's like, that's what I mean by impact is, despite the foreshadowing, it is genuinely surprising because... Like, that whole episode, I'm waiting for her to die, right? Because you know it's going to happen. Tomino has made it abundantly clear he's going to kill this woman. And you're waiting. And it's a giant battle. So you're thinking they're going to get hit by something. Or, you know, that that, uh, torpedo that she's sending out, isn't. it's not going to go right or something. But it just to be the blowback of it just flings her off. And she's lost. And no one's ever going to know exactly how it happened is so painful and hard and like poor fucking Kai, like what he has to carry with him in terms of like that is in no small part his fault in a dozen different little ways. Yeah. 
uh, and like everyone on the white base knows, but no one's going to tell him that because clearly he's suffering enough and he has learned his lessons and no one deserves that. It's a, it's a very powerful sequence. And again, as you've said many times on the show before, Sean, but the way information propagates through episodes of like, yeah, we see something and then we have to, the characters have to learn it. It's not just taken for granted. That is always one of the great sources of power in Gundam. And that, that death really capitalizes on that. Yeah, and it is because it is. It's it always strikes me every time I've seen this episode of it is the there's something so real about the way that it happens that it doesn't feel like it's the staged movie TV death sequence. It, it but it's it's something that feels like a yeah, like I'm sure that kind of shit has to happen all the time. Like think of all the ways stupid ways that like normal people just die in real life through weird accident or whatever happens. You know, slipping on a bathroom tile like that kind of thing that just kills people all the time and in the middle of this like really like profoundly dangerous life of living on a battleship in the middle of this big war like you could it's not just you getting shot down in a big heroic death any small innocuous thing is dangerous enough to kill you and and the way that it's executed is so haunting um seeing her fling off like that and then you also get that really powerful sequence at the end of the episode where kai is sort of sobbing on his own and they do this very like i feel like this is we're getting into the stretch of gundam where it starts getting very very stylized when it wants to where now because you have that whole sequence where kai is just sobbing on like a pitch midnight black background and then this weird like really detailed portrait of miharu kind of hangs over him and he imagines things that she's saying to him about um, that it's going to be okay that my brother and sister are going to live a better life than we were able to. Uh, like all that, the things that she never said to him, but he's like imagining that she maybe would say uh, like that. It's such a interesting sequence that is a very different, like Gundam had, has up to this point never tried to do something quite stylized in that way. And I think it helps sort of get you into Kai's head and push him to the place where he is now for the rest of the show of him being much more dedicated and committed member of the white base because he, I think now understands maybe some of the importance of ending this war, whether it's Zeon who wins or the Federation who wins. I think now Kai understands like the suffering that war causes and the reason why these kids are, you know, orphaned and like truly orphaned now without even be hard to take care of them. All of that is because of the war. And so yeah. he's, he has this renewed purpose by the end of that episode. Because he's someone who was detached from it. Like, that's our introduction to him in episode two is Sela just finds him out there, like, leaning against a wall being cool because he's too cool for all this shit, right? Yeah. And that's kind of his stance throughout. Even when Ryu dies, he is a little detached from it. And this is, okay, the war comes home to him. And it hits him. And it hits us, as it has many times in the past. And uh, rest in peace, Miharu. Rest in peace, yeah. It, that also reminds me of um, before Kai runs down the hill to rejoin the white base. I love he has that moment where he's like sort of wavering. And then there's this little montage of him remembering. Because he says like, why should I have to go to the white base after all the shit that happened to me? And then he has flashbacks to fucking immediately. It's just from one of the early episodes where Bright just punches Kai out 
on the bridge of the white base and then everybody getting mad at him and yelling at him like Amuro. And then at the end of that montage is that scene, the first scene we see him in in episode two where Sayla calls him a coward and that line echoes in his head and that's what causes him to run down. And that's a really well-executed sequence of you see Kai processing everything that happened to him and and having to sort of steal himself. Yes. That's also something to note in this set of episodes. Gundam is the rare anime that when it cuts back to footage from previous episodes, it's not killing time. It's doing it because it has to, and they get through it really quick. You don't sense that the anime team wants to kill time with this. It's just like, we need to see those shots, so let's go through them. Usually when an anime cuts back to footage from previous episodes, it's ten minutes and half the episode, and they are doing it because they are just running against the manga as hard as they can. Yes, they're running against the manga where they just don't have any time, and and so they're like, well, fuck it. Instead of doing a recap episode, let's just have this be like five minutes of this fucking fight scene that Amuro is remembering. Like Gundam Seed... Uh, which is a much later, it's like a Gundam show from 2000, has a really funny version of that where they clearly ran out of time in the second half of the show. And so they probably show about a dozen times this clip of one of the main characters getting killed by a shield flying into his um, fighter that he's piloting. And you, I swear to God, you see that dude get killed more than you see Krillin blow up in Dragon Ball. Um, but yes, the original Mobile Suit Gundam does not have that problem. When it chooses to employ flashbacks, it's a very deliberate thing, not like a time-saving measure. Exactly. All right, so then we're going to have the stretch of episodes in Jaburo, which is also very good. Yes, and I love, I, I just love Gundam names always, and whether it's names for characters or names for locations, um, we haven't even heard the best location name yet. We're getting that next time. Um, but Jaburo in South America, the hidden uh, Federation secret base. Jaburo is such a good fucking name for this like secret military location hidden in like the Amazon rainforest. Indeed. Uh, and this is this is an interesting set of episodes. I really like the first one, Tragedy in Jaburo, where you get there and you see it's because it's the it's the general headquarters of the Federation, right? Yes. Yeah. At this point, this is where the Federation is is headquartered. Yes, and you get Char and his, I'm looking at the name here, custom MSM-07 Z-Gok, which is yes. very cool. And you have a really good fight there, and uh, a little bit in the next episode. I really love Tragedy and Jaburo. The episode A Wish of War Orphans, I will have to say, I think is one of the weaker episodes of Gundam. We'll talk about that when we get there. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, but I do think that one episode, Tragedy and Jaburo... Again, I felt in my head like they spent five episodes in Jaburo, and mm-hmm. mostly I'm just remembering that one episode because it's a small thing, but you meet this guy, I forget his name, but the Captain man... Captain Woody. Captain Woody. God, every name. Every name is so good. But Captain Woody, who was Matilda's fiance, they were going to get married, and he's a really... He's exactly who you think Matilda would be engaged to, right? Yes. He is a similarly good, committed, moral dude, right? And... You know, meets Amuro, and he has no ill will towards any of these people. In fact, exactly the opposite. He's like, if Matilda fought for you, I'm fighting for you. And as soon as you meet him, I just in my head, I'm like, they're going to kill. The episode's called Tragedy in Jaburo. This fucking dude, he's not long for this earth. And he's not, but he gets a good death, and it is part of a really cool underwater. Like, aren't they going through the caves at that point? Yes, yeah. It's, okay. it's Amuro and him are fighting, like, Shar through the caves of Jaburo. Yes. yes. It's also one of the most direct cases of Shar himself killing a character we know and like. Yes. Right? And like, has, has Shar mm-hmm. killed anyone that directly, like, like his own hand? 
No, I mean, like, the biggest thing he's done is, uh, like, orchestrate the death of yes. Garma. But, Which yes, is a, he, but we don't like Garma in that way. <laughs> I mean, I like Garma in that way. Garma's a, he's a, he's a nice kid that was born on the wrong side of the war. Yes. He doesn't, he didn't deserve to get fucked like that. No, but um, he's not Matilda's, you know, fiancé who's trying to help our heroes, I guess no, is what yes. I'll say. Yeah, he's definitely not a, you know, he's a character that you're... The garment needed to die. You definitely, definitely want desperately Captain Woody to survive. And it is like, again, in my memory, Captain Woody must be around for like three episodes of the show. It's like, nope, he is introduced and killed in the same episode. And normally that would feel so cheap if in most other shows doing it. Somehow Gundam just pulls it off flawlessly because you feel like you spend time with this guy. And most of it is that they they know like exactly what scenes they need to show. And I love that scene where after everything has kind of settled down, the white base is getting repairs. Amro goes and finds him and talks to him about Matilda. And that's where he finds out that, oh, that you were, that they were going to get married after Odessa Day. It wasn't even just that they were planning on getting married. It's that like they were planning on getting married like a week ago and a week after she died. And so it's like a very short stretch of time there. And Amuro has that flashback to, or not a flashback, but like this is like daydream of Matilda at her wedding and all the white base people are there. And it's this like really sweet, cute moment. Um, and it's Gundam knowing that that's exactly the kind of scene we need to establish Woody. And I love that Amuro doesn't have like some weird, jealous thing directed towards Woody because I think that would feel like artificial and fake and I think it would make us not like him. Um, that both Amro and Woody, it would kind of put us against both those characters. And so them just having Amro realizing that his dumb crush thing was just a dumb crush thing and like wishing that Matilda would have been able to have that kind of happy moment. Um, like that's such an effective way to build this, this Captain Woody guy before we have Char brutally murder him. And when Char brutally murders him, doesn't Amro see the vision again and it like shatters? Yes. Which is, I mean, that's that's such good planning to set it up and knock it down like that. Yeah, no, again, doing this in one episode, it's crazy. I feel like if Tomino was given the 13 episodes to conclude Game of Thrones the way the Game of Thrones people were, he'd be like, cut three of those episodes off and I'll do it just fine. Yes. Right? Yeah. It's, so that's it's, plenty of time. It's ridiculous. And then you, in this episode, you just have, I think, the, like, the assault on Jabro is also really cool. It's one of the, the, the better, like, big battle sequences in the show. And, and especially because we have Char as a kind of, like, point character, and we're following him. And I love that, you know, he, he jumps off the dropship in his Zagok with two other guys, and those two other guys immediately get shot down. And, like, there's something about that that makes it feel really real, that it's not... Amro having to get into a big fight and then he kills the two other dudes which is how kind of every fight with Char went in the early part of the show where he's fighting Char and a couple of other guys and he's not able to get Char but he's able to get S Lieutenant Slender or whoever um but yeah so all Char's guys get gunned down and so then Char has to sneak in and find the Zok and where they're going in they decide to do a pincer attack and the moment when Amuro sees Char's red Zagok and realizes it's Char is 
I mean, any moment where Amro and Char have like a scene together are the best moments in the show. And that just the shot of the Zagok, which has just like, I think, impaled a GM through the chest with his big fucking spike claws. And then it's crouching down and in slow motion, it stands up as Amro's looking at it like horrified. And then it does a cut into the cockpit as at the same pace, Char's head lifts up and does that little Char smirk. And it's the best like fuck yeah moment we've gotten in a long time in this show of just like they, like while episode 26 was called Shar Returns Tragedy in Jabro is where Shar is back baby and he's just up to his bullshit and it's fucking great it's fucking great I think it's this episode or the next one where we get a little bit of Shar almost losing his shit of like getting frustrated like how are they killing all my people this fast like like I feel like I don't know if the last five episodes have this but I feel like we might be headed towards his Light Yagami moment where he loses his cool and goes fucking crazy. I'm referencing the end of Death Note where Light mm-hmm. Yagami finally goes off the fucking rails. I don't know if that's going to happen to Char, but I know that... Um, I forget the name of the actor, but I know he could sell it. He yeah, could sell it like Ikeda? Cr- yes. yes, he could sell it. Because um, he, goes, he goes a little bit. He goes like 25% of the way in that episode. That's great. But yes, uh, any moment with Char is... I mean, because also, the previous set of episodes we talked about with the just parade of death was so sad and it was so relatively devoid of those fuck yeah moments that Shar gives you. I'm glad we kind of get it. And I, those episodes needed to be that way. Yeah. But now that we're, we're, it shows us that we're moving past a little bit that we can have Shar come back and do his little smirk. And I'll also say, you know, Shar is, if this show has three main characters, it's Amaro, Bright, and Shar. Yes. Any other show, if you told me you are not going to learn the third main character's motivations until episode 38, which is what happens in this show. You do not know Char's motivations until episode 38. And even then, there's still some things to be revealed. But, like, other than knowing he hates the zombies, we really don't know what this guy is up to. Doing that for 38 episodes is insane. It should not work. It works because the character is that expressive, he is that entertaining, and the performance by Ikeda is just that fucking, like, delightfully, evilly good. Mm -hmm. That's what makes it sore. And also that they don't over-rely on him in those 38 episodes. There's a good stretch where he's not there every episode, but, like... You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah, because because it is definitely... It's important that he's gone for a big stretch, because then I think... I think it would be too tempting to just, like, have every five episodes the scene where Char runs into Sela and they have, like, their little blah-blah-blah, and then they depart. Um, and do you'd have to do that scene, like, three or four more times if he was here for the whole Ramba Rouse stretch. But they only... I mean, Char and Sela only actually meet, I think, three times uh, so far. And so having... You know, just, like, it interspersed and getting those little insights into it, I think, is what helps the mystery work because I think also if they revealed Char's sort of true nature earlier in the show, it would rob his character of some of his mystique. Whereas with would now we only have five episodes left. That means you have to just you you can't play around, you can't jerk around with Char's character. You have to just like deliver all the beats you need to deliver with him um after the mystery's been revealed. And so I think they just play it the perfect way of he gets to be cool and mysterious and weird for most of the show while still managing to have managing, you know, and we'll talk about it next time. Um, but I feel strongly having like the full payoff of who he is, um, like land 100% by the time you get to the end of the show. Exactly. It's just, it's a good example of execution trumping everything else. Cause yes. again, no one would tell you keep that back for 38 episodes, but if you do it right, it becomes better because of it. So Absolutely. There you go. 
Then we have that episode, a, what is it, a Wish of War Orphans? Yes. Okay, I thought it was a Dream of War Orphans for a second, and I'm like, that'd be weird. But anyway, you know, I like Kika Cats and Let's. I like them an awful lot in the background. I don't know if they needed their own episode, and I think this one just... Gundam has such a careful sense of tone, and it is such a Jenga tower of tone. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Where it's yes. like, it feels like it could collapse at any second, and the brilliance of Gundam is that it doesn't. It does not collapse in this episode by any means. But I think there was a risky pull on one of the Jenga pieces, and it wavered for a second. That's how I would describe this episode. Overall. I agree. Yeah, I think it's something where it feels like a little... It, it kind of feels like... Partially because its plot is partially taken from Time Be Still. It feels like an episode from that part of Gundam that kind of got transplanted here into Jaburo. And there's a lot of stuff in it that I think is really good. I think you needed this episode of having all the, the characters at Jaburo and have it be a little bit more quiet and you just get to have some really good scenes between like Amuro and Fraubo and stuff like that to kind of place set something, places where we're going to go. But the A plot of the orphans and finding the bombs, I think one thing is it does is it kind of, I, I think like Shard doesn't have a good spot for that kind of middle stretch of the episode where his plan is just kind of dumb and foiled by orphans. I think all the stuff where he meets up with Sela and then he has a brief fight with Amuro, I think that stuff is good. But just really that, good. Yeah, that middle stretch of the episode when it has to really focus on the orphans. I, I, I wish that it was just like a smaller scale thing, I, I think, is mostly it. If the yeah, war orphans, because... instead of solving the bomb issue, if they kind of discovered it and helped Amuro or people instead of them like being fully like in the middle of it and then getting all the bombs and throwing it onto the truck, I think it kind of pushes them too far in a way that feels a little bit unbelievable. I have to say, like, one of the things that came to mind was it felt like an episode of, like, DuckTales to me, where you would have, sure, like, yes. the little kid ducks going around and doing the adventure and then getting in the car and, like, driving away. And, and I, it could be DuckTales, it could be any Saturday morning cartoon, but it came back to that zone where, like, Gundam is the Trojan horse that looks like a Saturday morning cartoon but sort of isn't. And this one sort of, the mask falls a little bit because also I think the thematic thrust of the episode is what to do with Kika, Cats, and Let's, because if you are at Jaburo and you have a clear off-ramp for those characters who are three little kids on this warship, you have to provide a pretty damn good justification for them to be on that warship when you leave the off-ramp, right? Yeah. And that's what this episode is attempting to do. If you have the war orphans literally handling explosive material, then Fraubo's argument in the end seems awfully petty and short-sighted of her. And I don't know how much we're supposed to criticize the crew of the White Base for wanting to keep these kids on board, but I'm sort of sitting there like, boy, I don't know. If I saw these kids handling explosive material, I'd be like, eh, let's find them a new home. And so, like, I I agree with you. I think if it had been a smaller-scale thing or their role in it had been different, then I could buy the ending a little more. It's just one of those places where the stars don't quite align and again, this is mostly by the own incredible standard Gundam sets for itself that I'm criticizing this episode. It's still a very good episode of television. Yeah, yeah, because I, I like it a lot. And I, I like the 
especially all the stuff at the end with Amuro chasing down Char, because this is the part where you were talking about earlier, where um, Amuro just kind of cleaves through all the people that Char's with, with kind of no real effort at all. And Char just kind of freaks out and bails. And there's a great shot where they're all escaping and Char is in his Zagok. And then he has um, another new mobile suit with him, the Ak guys, which are, they kind of have replaced the Gogs. The Ak Ak guy being one of my personal favorite mobile suits, because it was immortalized in the Gundam Build Fighters anime as the bear guy, which is an Akka guy that looks like a teddy bear, and it's fucking great. Google it later, because it's a really good design. Um, but the Zagok and all the Akka guys, like, jump over this, like, cliff and use their claws to, like, anchor onto the ceiling of the cave and swing themselves over, which is just a great little piece of animation. And then, yes, and then Amuro just kind of cuts all through all of them, and Char just has to get the fuck out of there. Yes, and that is the ep- that is I will say the episode where I was starting to realize, oh, Amuro is really good now. Like that to me mm. is the sequence where you definitively know Amuro is no this is no longer about being in the Gundam. Up until this point it has been a mix of Amuro's own skills and that the Gundam is really strong. In that sequence you are starting to get the sense he could do this in a just a Zaku if he wanted. Like yes. this is not about being in the Gundam. And like, okay, he's, and Char gets it too. Like, that's part of it is like, if Char's freaked out, we should probably be a little freaked out, right? Uh, Because this guy doesn't lose his cool. And it's, and that continues into the next set of episodes, all the stuff in space where like, they haven't played their hand yet and gotten into the new type stuff, I, I wouldn't say, at least for me going through a first time. Like, I don't sense there's any sort of heightened abilities. It's just that he's really good at it. And... It's kind of like, this is what Gundam has done so well. And starting with, like, he had no skill at this to this point, I can't even tell you the exact turning point, because there isn't one exact turning point. It's just bit by bit, and I think this is actually part of the formula of the show working really well, that he gets in the Gundam every episode, is that with every episode, the anime staff can do just a little bit to push that ball forward and show us Amuro getting better, so it doesn't feel like a cheat when he's doing that, what he does in the cave in this episode. Absolutely, yeah. And it's just that slow buildup of going from where Amuro was when he first fought Char back in episode two, and Amuro like barely escapes because Char is, has very little ammunition, and none of his weapons seem to be able to even scratch the Gundam, and so Amuro just kind of gets through because they can't even hurt the Gundam. Yeah, now we're getting to the point where Amuro is just... Like, it's not just that he's, like, being able to pull out the full utility of the Gundam. It's that he's really good. Because also, remember, he's not fighting Zakus anymore. He's fighting Goofs and Zagoks and Akkai's and, like, all these new mobile suits that have been designed after the the Zeons have had ample, like, encounter time with the Gundam in the White Base and have designed a lot of, like, their... You know, have observed that stuff and then taken a lot of those improvements and put them into their own designs. So, they're all the the mobile suits that Amuro is fighting are much more powerful than Zaku's, especially when he's fighting stuff like Rick Dom's in the next set of episodes. It it, it highlights more and more that just like just how powerful he has become at this point. Well, and it's a really sly switch for the show to make so gradually and so subtly from the Gundam is the source of power to Amuro is the source of power. That is like one of, I think, the master strokes of this show because it, it, it really, that's what makes this, like, as much as anything else in terms of the design of the robots, I feel like that's what makes this the real robot show that we were talking about in, in like, episode one of this mm-hmm. show where you went through, like, mech shows being super robot shows or real robot shows. I feel like it's, 
less about the robots themselves than the people inside them. And what they've done with Amuro, that to me is what really cements this as its own kind of thing and a new template going forward. Yeah, and it makes his arc um, is so satisfying to see while also continuing to be something that like you kind of don't want to see because he's he's like Amuro's kill count has to be like in the hundreds by the time we get to the end of this stretch of episodes because he's not just taking down mobile suits there he's also taking down like whole like Musai class cruisers and shit like that that are that staffed must be by dozens if not a hundred people or so um so he's he's killing a lot of people at this point in the show and it, it, it's it's a little bit disturbing sometimes because they Gundam continues to do the thing of they don't ever let you just kind of ignore the fact that all these uh, mobile suits are piloted by people. Whether, no matter how small it is, they will almost always cut into the cockpit of whoever poor motherfucker happens to be on the other side of Amuro's beam rifle and watches his cockpit just dissolves in a, like a hail of lasers and he screams and explodes. He is they, the show never kind of lets us get away with believing that this is the most convenient version where he's just killing faceless people. All of them like typically have names. They have little character designs, and they all. Uh, you know, they all don't want to fucking get blown up by the goddamn Gundam. Indeed. I think it's the end of this episode. We're on episode 30 where uh, Bright gets the news that we already knew they were going to be going to space and meeting up with the, what's the name of the fleet? The Tianem fleet? Yes, the Tianem fleet, yeah. Yeah. We know they're going to meet with that, but he is told that they are going to specifically be a decoy. And that's like our cliffhanger into the next episode, which is called A Decoy in Space. Yes, so so the Federation has set up their plan that um, the Xeon forces are mobilized at the Space Fortress of Solomon, which is led by uh, Dozel Zabi, who we met way earlier in the show. He was Shar's commanding officer before Shar killed Garma, um, and that's what got Shar got pushed into Cassilia's um, kind of troops. And so Dozel's like that that big dude. So he's at Solomon. So the the TNM the main fleet the TNM fleet for the Federation is going to slingshot around Luna Two. If you remember all the way back in episode four when we were at Luna Two for that one episode, they're going to go around the long way and come at Solomon from the side. And the White Base and a couple of other ships are serving as decoys, and they're kind of going through side like over by where Side Six is, and more directly towards where Solomon is. And so to try to get Shar to follow them and the rest of the the Zeon fleet to focus in on the White Base because they know the fucking Zeons are obsessed with the White Base in the Gundam at this point because they have just managed to completely fuck the Zeons at every single turn. And I think one of those nice things about the whole switch of it being Amuro, not the Gundam, is that the Zeons have no idea that it's not because the technology is so good anymore. It's because not just Amuro, but Amuro and Bright and Kai and Sela and, and Mirai, they're all like incredibly effective at what they're doing at this point. And so it's not the technology, it's that they are facing like... What, like a crew that has had more combat experience than probably almost anybody else in this fucking war because they've been on their own this whole time. Indeed. And I, it's a really interesting setup because on the one hand, boy, is that cutthroat and ruthless of the Federation to send the kids out on their own as a decoy. But also, that's really good military strategy. And that's something I appreciate about Gundam is that it has actual, like, solid strong military strategy when it comes to these things that's a really smart plan and it works like it like char sees through it but char's also like 
we're still going to go after the white base, right? Well, because it's actually because it's one of the only times they've legitimately outsmarted Char because Char does figure it out, but he figures it out late enough that he realizes he realizes if they turn around to go after where the main fleet is, the white base will just turn around and kill them immediately as soon as they show their back to it. So. Char realizes, like, oh, like, I have figured out what their plan is, but it's just he's, like, a minute or two or, like, a step two too late in the process to actually do anything about it, which is a very satisfying moment. Very satisfying. And again, like, I just, I appreciate the effective military strategy. Absolutely. This is also, so all the stuff in, uh, at the beginning of a decoy in space, you have them leaving Jaburo. And so this is where, one, we get introduced to um, our, our American character, even though nobody ever calls him American... If you've seen enough anime, you know all the coding. We've got Lieutenant Slegger Law. Incredible name, Slegger Law. Just fucking, you know, top-tier Gundam naming for Slegger Law. And he's this big, blonde, buff uh, American dude. Uh, He comes onto the ship basically as our replacement for Ryu um, in terms of he's a fighter pilot who's going to man the guns and and fly one of the G-Fighters. And so they leave, and then there's also just this small moment that I absolutely adore, and it's one of the areas where I think the the direction and, like, color palette of Gundam really shines through visually, is when as the white base is launching off from Jaburo, a, a flock of flamingos comes flying yes. up next to the white base, and it's at sunset, and all the crew are on the bridge, and they all look out the window. And I love Bright has this, like, tour guide moment where he gets on the intercom and it's like, like, hey, everybody, there's a, fleek, a flock of flamingos off our port side. If you want to go check it out, like, go to, go to the windows, um, and all the flamingos are flying up. And I believe, if memory serves, I think that's the moment they choose to end the second Gundam movie on, and that's where they play the credits, and it's a very good moment there as well. Um, it is because I just downloaded those movies and was checking the files, and I wanted to know where movie two ended, so you are correct. Yes, so they have, like, a whole insert song that plays over the credits and stuff. And, yeah, it's it's... That that just like that animation and that shot and that again when we're talking about while Gundam is action packed and it's stuffed to the gills with like narrative, it always finds moments for these cute little like story beats and and kind of like palate cleansers and that's one of my favorite ones personally. Absolutely, no, I love that. And we're back in space, and that is really interesting to look at like the arc of this show that we start in space, we spend a lot of time on Earth, and then when the crew like like the crew comes to Earth. Not a crew yet. They're just yeah. a mismatched, you know, group of mostly amateurs and mostly civilians and kids. They get on Earth, they have all these adventures, and by the time they leave Earth's atmosphere again, they are one of the most effective crews in the entire fleet. And I think that is one of the smartest, like, macro planning things they do in Gundam, is to have this giant middle section of the... It's hard to even call it middle. It's like the first section of the show, because there's only a couple episodes in space early on. But basically, middle section of the show where you are on Earth, all these different things happen, and by the time they get back to where the show started in space... They're a completely different group of people, and so that contrast of seeing them against the backgrounds of outer space is made very stark for us. It's really smart planning. Yeah, and you can tell that it was like a really, really smart way to structure things because so many Gundam shows just copy that structure because it's it's so it's so satisfying, and, and it's one of the ways that also you get to just have the cool going from space to Earth and from Earth to space are always some of like the coolest episodes of Gundam, because just cool shit happens with that. Um, 
But yes, like most Gundam shows choose to copy that structure and have the characters start in space, go to Earth somewhere, like sometimes it's it's later, sometimes it's earlier, and then go from Earth back into space. And basically almost every Gundam show has like the final stretch of episodes be a big confrontation in space because space is cool. Space is cool. And these two episodes are cool. Uh, you have the, uh, the decoy in space and then Breakthrough is the next episode. Breakthrough is a little light in terms of like it's, it's another space battle and it suffers a little bit in comparison to the battle against the Zanzibar, which is such a good battle. But I do like these two episodes and I do like how it sets up the next very meaty stretch, which is, which is at side six. Yeah, and so there's there's a couple of things that I really love about um, these. The fights in these episodes, I think, are very good. And particularly in Decoy in Space, you have all the stuff with Sayla and her in the G-Fighter. And she's... It's because it's, it's an interesting switch of where you had Amuro having to, like, had that long adjustment period to him having to fight in gravity once they got to Earth for the first time. But then now that they're back in space, Amuro knows how to fight in space. He already fought in space before. And then also Amuro's so good, he can just kind of take whatever's coming at him. But Sayla has never fought in space before because she only came a pilot when they were on Earth. So Sayla now has to become get used to the idea of, of fighting in orbit. And they actually, while it's like very basic, they account for some like orbital physics stuff of if you're in orbit around a significant gravitational body, the faster you move... Um, basically the lower your altitude is. So the higher your velocity is, the closer you are to whatever that body is. So if you want to get further away from the Earth, you can't just sort of go really fast. You have to pay attention to where you're moving. And if you slow down, you will actually go higher. And then obviously if you're like burning in a specific direction, you will move away from Earth's orbit. But if you're in the middle of like a big fight like Sayla is, she keeps on just kind of trying to boost around to get around the enemy and not thinking about like the kind of the macro what is actually happening. So she keeps on almost getting dragged down to Earth. And all those like little tiny fiddly details they pay attention to is very cool. And it allows Amuro's like scientific experience to shine through um, and his ability to kind of handle that scenario. And then Sayla, both because she hasn't, she's not used to this kind of combat. And then also she's so distracted thinking about her brother, um, Char, uh, that, that she can't quite get used to this, this combat scenario at first. Yes, I love that too. And it's, it's not quite like this is the exact counterpoint to the episode where they land on Earth for the first time. Because that episode is entirely concerned with the physics of getting down to the surface. And it doesn't do the exact inverse of that. But we get enough of it to kind of scratch that itch. And I agree. I think Sayla's part of it is the best part of that fight. Because anytime someone has to learn on the job, like... Whether that be a kung fu anime or a mech anime or any kind of thing, that's always some of the best fight scenes, you know. Absolutely, um, yeah. But then otherwise, like, yeah, that, that I think for sure the decoying space fight is better than the breakthrough one for those elements and just like it's more because that's the one where they're fighting Char in the Zanzibar, and then breakthrough is where you have. Drin, who was Char's second in command from like the beginning of the show, he shows up with his fleet of Musai's, um, and and, and, and he them. stays around for all the side six stuff, right? Um, no, I think he gets killed oh. at the end of Decoy. Okay. Bay, or, or, break, or at the end of break, Breakthrough, I believe. Who's the villain in the Side 6 stuff? Um... Because they're fighting a dude who oh, hates yeah. Char. And that's, a, that's a different... I, I don't remember his name. He's just, like, okay. another... I think he's one of Dozel's, um, like, lieutenants, or, like, he's okay. kind of, like, one of his second-in-command, because he doesn't like Char, because Char is part of the Cassilia side of the forces. Right. Okay. So, anyway, those are two different... Yeah, Breakthrough, I thought, was just a tad formulaic for Gundam it it's it's fine it's a good episode I enjoyed it just not as much to talk about there's a couple of things about breakthrough of one 
so, so this is also the point of the show because I think the first one we see is in a decoy in space is we get introduced to the mobile armors, which are a slightly different class. I mean, they're basically just like big fighter ships more or less. Um, but so we have some mobile armors and then we have um, the Zacrello, which is the weird yellow mobile armor at the beginning of Breakthrough. Uh, that like has it's like got a big face with fangs on it that the Gundam disposes of in about three minutes at the beginning of the episode, which I like. It like the Zacrello just feels like one of those like I, th- I feel like the Zacrello probably exists to show just how desperate Zeon is that they're just throwing every like random bullshit thing they have. In fact, Char has that line where where one of the guys is like, "I'm sorry, I let." Uh, Lieutenant whatever his face is take the the Zacrello off and get killed and starts like I don't really care like any machine that I didn't even realize was a part of our fleet and we lose it like that's no loss to me like I really like that moment a lot that is my favorite moment of that episode I'm glad you brought it up because I'd kind of forgotten but I remember laughing like an idiot and like rewinding because Char is such a petty bitch in that moment of like oh we lost this thing it's like I didn't even know we had it. I don't care. Yeah. It's like it's this so random motherfucker just gets killed. Which I had not realized this the other times I saw this. The guy who's the pilot of the Zacrello is in one scene in the previous episode. And I only know that because that character is in the Gundam vs. game as like a mini boss. And so I saw his characters and I'm like, oh my god, that's the Zacrello guy. He's, he's actually been set up in a previous episode. I had no idea. The other thing to say about Breakthrough is I believe Breakthrough is... Oh, wait, no, no that, sorry, not, this is not Breakthrough. It's a later one, but since I'm thinking of it, I'll make the point anyways. Um, in terms of Amro being a death machine, uh, this is also where you start getting... He has the episode where the the guy at Side 6 has his whole fleet of, like, 12 Rick Doms that he sends at our crew, and Amro kills nine of them, and he's counting. Yep. And so he's counting each one through, and, he, and the white base... So I think Kai kills one, uh, Sela kills one... Slegger, no, Hayato kills one, and then Amuro kills nine of them. And the Rick Doms, which used to be, like, a big deal, and they just cut through that whole fucking fleet in, like, 30 seconds. And that lieutenant dude's just like, what the fuck happened? Like, how is this even possible? Because that's, as you said, a a different episode, right? Yes. Because I had that in my notes to bring up, because that is... I actually have a, a screenshot of it, because that... All of the 12 Rick Doms coming at them. There's a really great composition with that entire force coming their way. And I have that saved. I have several shots I saved while watching to like use as our art this week. I don't know which one it'll be. But that is one of the contenders. And yes, the the that fight being... It's, it's like fucking Seven Samurai. Where uh, the main samurai in that movie has like his list of like... Mm-hmm. We know they're going to have 40 men. And he's like using his little brush to like... Okay, we've taken out this one and this one and this one. And Amuro is like doing it and he says like... That's one. That's two. That is a crazy fucking fight it's re- it's it's top tier gundam yeah so i can't remember which i think that's when that must have been when they're leaving side six so that's I probably that's a fateful encounter is probably which one that that takes place in but yeah so. isn't it isn't that the one where amuro's dad who we'll get to is watching on the tv yes that's right okay yes that's that's when that episode happens okay so anyway but all very good stuff so we should talk about side six though Yes, so Space Sweden, side six, which is a neutral a neutral side, um, because most of the other sides have been more or less destroyed. I, there's some piece of narration earlier in the show that kind of lets us in on 
like there other than side three is where the zeons are and so they're good um side seven which where we started is only partially under construction and then side four is where the battle of loom happened so that one's that's where the space colonies that or the space colony they drove into the earth that one was from side four so most of the other sides are mostly kind of destroyed or dispersed but side six seems to have kind of managed to have some kind of weird political neutrality that is a benefit to both the Federation and the Zeons because they have a place to go to, that there's a treaty that they're not going to fight at. Um, so they just kind of let side six be neutral. And this is convenient because we get to have our kind of like our shore leave episode of where everyone gets off on side six. Um, and a lot of shit happens. We get introduced to a lot of fucking stuff in this this section of the show. Again, I think side six is like... They're there for two episodes. I can't really remember because it feels like they're there for a lot longer. Yes, We're, yes two episodes, 33 and 34. A fa- Farewell Inside Six and A Fateful Encounter, both are yeah. Side Six episodes. But man, it's... Uh, yeah, I actually think now looking back, I, I, it doesn't matter which one is the, the 12 Rick Doms, but it's... it's I forget which one exactly it was. But anyway, um, yes, those are both... Because they do get attacked in both cases. Uh, and it's Captain Konskon is his name. Yes, um, you're right. But anyway... Yes, these two episodes are, they are so fucking eventful and so much happens and they're very, very good. I, I also just love all the details that they give to side six. Like again, there is a level of detail in Gundam that it does not need to be a good, like solid show, but I do feel like constantly elevates it by adding all this around the edges to make it feel like a complete world. So for instance, they get to side six and... And as they're coming in, there are these mm-hmm. crews that put tape over all their weapons just to show, like, if these seals break, we'll know you used weapons and we know you will have broken our treaty. And then they get in there and they show, and the narrator even has a line about this, that, like, as the further you get into side six, there's this big rotating area that creates artificial gravity. And it's basically like the halo or something, you know? Yes. Uh, and it's, it's like this little halo world and you have gravity and you have weather and all this stuff and it's it's got a little you know nightlife scene in the town and there's more of a country area and you know that that's part of why i i feel like side six is more episodes is because there's so much environmental variety in in the course of where they go in side six but the show sets all of that up and it really does feel like you could do a whole 50 episode anime about people living on side six just based on the details we get in these two episodes and that's wild yeah, because because while we started on Side 7, Side 7 was not a fully finished space colony. And so Side 6 is the first time we've been to, like, this is a proper space colony that is, like, at peace right now. And the people are just, like, living there. And so, yes, you get that really great just bit of animation with, like, the diagram and the narration of when they're in, at the dock, which is in the middle of the space colony. There's no gravity. And then they take this, like, super... I forget how... Like, they say how long the elevator is. It's some super ridiculously long elevator elevator to get to the arms of the colony that are spinning for gravity um you have that moment when amuro before he meets lala for the first time he's driving his buggy and he like says like ah oh, god damn it like they should have at least given us a like weather report because of course although like of course they would need weather for all the plants and everything they need to have rain that's just the most efficient way to do that um but so they would eventually just have like here's like our scheduled weather planning for the day um and all of those little details uh, especially when you remember that this was in 1979, so it's like there, there's not necessarily a huge amount of other things that are doing this kind of sci-fi at the time, um, particularly like anime and stuff like that. It's it's really impressive 
just the meticulousness of the world building detail they have that as you said is not stuff that's strictly needed but adds so much flavor to everything that happens yeah because obviously mobile suit gundam exists in the post star wars boom but as we've said before there's a reason why he has a giant fucking beam saber in mm-hmm. in the gundam but like this is the interesting thing about Star Wars, is Star Wars is not sci-fi. It's fantasy, it is pure fantasy, it's space fantasy, it has really no sci-fi elements to speak of. It is space fantasy. And yet, you do get, because of that, it looks enough like it might be sci-fi that you can get Gundam to kind of come in under the rug, and it's much more influenced by something like 2001 yes. than it is by a Star Wars. Oh, you and have so no it, idea. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we'll get 2001 Space Odyssey next time, but yes. Yes, but it's much more influenced by that, and so it is straight-up hard sci-fi but it can also have some fun beam, beam saber action too when it wants to. Yes, yeah. Gundam definitely has a really good balance of. I mean, it's honestly more higher hard sci-fi than Star Trek has ever been. Like it's. Oh it's, yeah. Yeah, it leans like pretty hard into the hard sci-fi direction. Well, down to like Star Trek does not give really any thought to how artificial gravity works on their ships, which I I don't. That's fine. That Star yes. Trek can do that. But I do love that in Mobile Suit Gundam. There's just no gravity on the ship. Like, they have to, like, strap themselves in, and when they go down the hallways, they have those little, like, um, the handles. That, like, the handles that take them along the rails and all of I that. I love the handles so much. You only see them a couple of times in this show, but they're all over the place in Zeta Gundam and Double Zeta Gundam. And I love every time someone, a little fucking handle pops out of the side of the hallway and they just grapple onto it and just, well, and just fly down the hallway. It's. The best idea for how you travel around a spaceship I have ever seen in anything. And I so... If if humanity ever gets its shit together and we actually get into space, I desperately hope that that is what we do because that looks like so much fucking fun. It does. It does. Yeah, I, I, I feel like... Kika, Cats, and Let's should just have an episode where they're just zooming around on those for fun. And Bright yeah. comes in and has to, like, you know, slap them away. Be like, stop that. But anyway, um, I got distracted. But yes, all these great details. Um, but then, yeah, a lot happens on Side 6, including Amaro meeting his dad. Sean, you had told me that we would see his dad again. Yep. That this would come up. You pointed out he does get sucked out into space. Just remember that. And I'm like, okay, I'll remember that. I thought when we saw the dad again, in my head, I built it up like he's going to help them figure out something about the Gundam. He's going to have invented something. He's going to... Am- no. No, mm-hmm. that's not what happened, Sean. Mm-hmm. He had extreme oxygen deprivation and is uh, he's not all there anymore. And Amaro, whenever Amaro meets his parents, prepare to cry because they're not good reunions. The whole sequence is unbelievable of just like how it's put together. Where so because Amuro is out shopping with uh, Fraubo and the chef from the Salt episode earlier, um, and so they're at like the grocery store at night, and it's got that great seventies like it's got this very like Sailor Moon looking nightlife with just like these weird bloom lights that just are kind of all over the place, or it looks like the um, some of the stuff from like the ending animation of the original Dragon Ball um, in that at night and that kind of stuff. Uh, and so he he sees his dad get onto a bus, and Amr goes running after the bus. And then I think this is maybe the only time they play this track. They play an instrumental version of um, the Amro theme, I think, from the end. That's like a very peppy, happy version of um, the Amro song. And he's running after the the bus, and it's playing this very peppy, happy song. And then the dad gets off the bus and Amr reunites with him and Amr is so excited and happy and is overjoyed to have seen Tam Ray, who we have not seen since he got sucked into space in episode two, which nobody else noted that he got sucked into space. He just wasn't there anymore. Um, and something seems slightly off about him at first because he's just not, 
he sees Amuro and he's just like, oh, hey, Amuro. And Amuro's like, hey, Dad, wow, I can't believe you're alive, right? He's like, oh, good job, Amuro. Your pilot, the Gundam's okay, huh? And it's like, yeah, no, Dad. Yeah, the Gundam's fine, Dad. Okay. And then Amuro follows him to this, like, dingy little apartment where you see that Tamre is just working on this, this like, fucking VHS player-looking piece of shit. And he gives it to Ga- to Amuro as, like, this, like, oh, this, like, put this in the Gundam. Like, this will upgrade. Everything will be better. Like, I've made this perfect thing. Like, everything will be great. And then Amuro has this, like, internal narration of, like, you're handing me an antique. And then Amuro realizes, oh, he must have suffered oxygen deprivation. That he doesn't have any idea really where he is or what, what he's doing. And, and that, like, slow... That that just like the fucking knife twist of Amro sees his dad in this this big reunion moment with happy music, and then you realize this is like the saddest possible conclusion, the saddest way that Amro could have ever meet his dad again. The guy who invented the Gundam, who is now like salvaging parts from a scrapyard and making junk that he thinks is something that's gonna make the Gundam better. It's so tragic. If he had just died, it would have been easier. If he mm-hmm. had never seen him again, it would have been he died in in the battle, and that is horrible and sad, but it's easy to understand. It makes sense. This is not. And yeah, it is one hell of a knife twist. Yeah, it's it's brutal. And because and, I remember, like, I so distinctly remember the first time I watched the show and, like, that moment... And feeling like, because I had just like happened to notice and kind of pay attention to that little beat in episode two where his dad gets sucked into space. And I had no idea that that detail would be like so critical and like become something that's important and like something the show actually followed up on in the most fucked up way possible. Uh, Yeah. Boy, howdy. It's fucked up and it is sad and poor Amuro. And, and... It also, though, shows where Amuro has come as a character in that he doesn't tell anyone about it. He keeps it in... He's able to kind of get back into the groove when he gets back on the ship and they have to go fight. Like, he can... He's starting to have that soldier sense of being able to compartmentalize, which he did not have before. Yeah, which which is both, like... It, it's, again, it's the, the, the weird thing, the weird, like, balance of Amuro's character where you're, like happy to see that he's not like totally devastated by this and you're happy to see that like Amr is able to go forward and if anything from this point on he's even a more effective soldier than he was he seemed to have been able to sort of like in some ways this has almost been like a weird unburdening for him of where he's like Amro has nothing like he 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 can't go back to his mom he can't go back to his like there's nothing for him there and so Amro has kind of cut everything else out and and that makes him a really effective soldier, but especially as you get in like from this point forward, you get these like a couple of moments with Faubo or characters mentioning his relationship with Faubo, and you start to realize how distant Amro has grown from everyone else. That's like it's good for him as a soldier. It's clearly not good for him as a human being, though. That he is like dealing with it this way. No. So yeah, um, poor Tamray. We do see him in the following episode. He is watching TV during the big battle with. Uh, Konskons, whatever his name is, forces, and he is very proud of the Gundam, but has no real sense of what's going on. And that's, I assume we don't see him again? Nope, that's the last we see of Tamaray. Jesus fucking Christ, this show is brutal. Yep. But the following episode, A Fateful Encounter, oh good God. 
oh good god this is a good episode sean yes because this is where you meet lala who through the end of these episodes we still do not know a ton about but clearly is going to be an important character yep uh and amuro has some kind of connection with her she is some kind of psychic and then amuro meets char face to face Mm -hmm. char has no idea who he is but amuro meets char and that scene oh oh that scene sean i will say i remember i was so i watched the previous episode farewell inside six and that is such a sad episode and I got to the end and I'm like, I'm not going to be able to watch anymore tonight. That was too brutal. And then the the next episode preview comes on and it shows Char and Amaro in the same scene together. And I'm like, fuck, fuck, next episode, next episode, yeah. right now. Skipping the theme song. I want to see that. Let's do it. And uh, it does not disappoint. Char is so great in that fucking scene. There's something so brain twisting about seeing Amaro and Char as people standing next to each other in the same shot. It's it's so good. Um and yes, like I just love the way they play it of um because Amro's Amro's fifteen years old. So of course like Shard doesn't think anything of this like random kid that they're both in uniform, so he like knows that Amro's a Federation guy, but like Shard doesn't give a shit, you know, obviously. Like he like Shard doesn't give a shit, one because Shard doesn't actually give that much a shit about the war we know that you know we know he's more after the zombie stuff and he has his own kind of plans going but then also it's this kid who Shar thinks is probably just like a nobody um but Amuro immediately realizes it's Shar, both because you know Shar is dressed in head to toe in black and red he's got a big weird gun sword thingy on his side that i don't think he ever uses that thing i'm not sure what it is but it sure looks real cool um, and he's got his fucking mask, and he's got, like, all of his rank, like, insignia. He's got all this, like, he's just dressed to the nines all the time. I love Char. And then also, because this is also with all the Lala stuff, you start getting more directly the the implications of weird kind of psychic-y stuff going on. And so Amuro, like, has this moment of realizing, like, how do I so confident that that's Char? Like, why do I know that that's Char? I've never actually met him before. Um, but yeah, but Char just kind of plays the whole thing off, and he's kind of laughing and puts the fucking like the hook on the the other car and like gets it out with Lala and he just kind of the for Char it was just like a random encounter that he's probably just going to forget immediately for Amuro it's like one of the most frightening moments in his entire life but there's also just the the attitude with which Char carries himself in that sequence down to the end where he like admonishes Amuro for not thanking him yes doesn't he yes Uh and like because, like, Char's just like, yeah, okay, there's someone stuck in the mud, I'll give him a hand. I don't care if they're Federation. Like, that's just what you do. You, you know, it's like, it's just, okay, this is fine. This is as much as Char shows compassion for other people, basically. And, um, but yes, for Amuro, it's like, he's about to have a fucking heart attack. Because I don't know if, if uh, you know, if Char could take Amuro in the Gundam, he could probably take him in real life. Yeah. Because, again, Char has his fucking weird thing on it as you say the like beam sword coming out of his uh belt and amuro is relatively unarmed so it's uh it's a tense sequence it is a hilarious sequence it is and it's something you need going into this last stretch you need to have them go face to face for just a little encounter uh because because also it sets up i assume there's going to be a moment where char realizes who's in the gundam in the final five that's an interesting theory yeah okay i just i assume that'll happen and if 
like to set up Char going fully ape shit, which is still my prediction, he has to know, oh fuck, it was that kid I helped out of the mud. So that is just that scene is is great for what it is and also for what it portends to come later. I I love it. Yes, it's very good. And then also you have um I love that the scene where Amaro first meets Lala, um, because it's it's just like because this is where just to kind of like talk about the new type stuff a little bit. Um, so one one major change that the movies make is that they use the word. I think I'm pretty sure they use the word new type all the way in movie one. It's definitely all the way. It's all over movie two, and so they just kind of more directly use that term and the, that phrasing and make it more explicit. And then Zeta Gundam and Double Zeta, basically all the other Universal Century Gundam stuff, is very fixated on the idea of new types and what that means um, with all the weird kind of psychic stuff. In Mobile Suit Gundam, I love how strange and esoteric and bizarre it feels every time it actually happens and it just gets kind of in your face with it. And so Amuro meeting this strange, like, weird lady who's just like in this big flowing dress and they both are watching this swan um as it is flying in the rain and then dies in mid in mid flight and and lala kind of predicts it's happening and says oh you poor thing and then the 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 swan falls and then amra looks at her and they have this weird conversation where she has some where he says like oh did you like that what did you was that like a swan that you liked and she says in her head, is there anybody who dislikes beautiful things? And then that line echoes like four or five times. And then she says out loud that line phrased slightly differently. And Amra just has no idea what the fuck is happening to him. And there's just like this weird, bizarre kind of psychic something that's happening here. And I just love how esoteric and kind of off, uh, like upsetting it is. And so with like the first time we encountered that kind of stuff, Jonathan, what was your kind of like feeling and impression of that sequence? It's, I mean, it definitely struck me. I was a little weirded out by it in a good way. I didn't fully know what to make of it yet. And I'll be honest, I still don't because Mm -hmm. it just, because we had that during the battle of Solomon, he has a big moment where he like sees like this image of like a demon or something yes. above the enemy suit. Um, and that's above, I think that's when he's fighting Dozel, isn't it? Yes. That's when Dozel, okay. we'll, yeah, we'll get to it. But yes, the Dozel stuff. Yes. So we have all of that. And then obviously everything that happens in Texas, there's a lot of it, but it's Texas, the space colony, not Texas, the United States. Uh, love it. Love it. Yes. Love it. Love it. Okay. So good. But anyway, um, so, so I'm starting to get it. And I generally have a sense of where they're going with it, but it is like, it is a giant stylistic departure, obviously, to do something like that. It is intentionally kind of fucking with you. I'll also say it immediately made me think, and I, I assume this had to have been an inspiration for Gundam now that I'm thinking about it. Have you ever seen the movie Horus, Prince of the Sun from 1968? Um, no, but I know what you're talking about, yes. Okay, so that is Isao Takahata's first film. Isao Takahata, later co-founder of Studio Ghibli, died last year. Um... Uh, Horus Prince of the Sun was his first feature film It was with Toei Animation Hayao Miyazaki That was also the first movie he worked on um, That movie is in many ways The Citizen Kane of anime Because it is like the movie that Like that's the birth of anime as we know it Is Horus Prince of the Sun In terms of cinema stuff Like you could go Astro Boy on TV You would go Horus in film And like Horus just sets down All these different things that anime start taking from One of them is the kinds of like interesting dynamic female characters anime will have you have embodied in the character of Hilda in Horus 
and Lala, Lala is Hilda, like, in, in three or four different ways. Like, oh, wow, that character is, like, very influenced by that archetype that they set down there in, in Horus. Um, this, like, mysterious girl with some kind of strange powers who the male protagonist meets and is kind of entranced by, but she has some kind of association with the evil character. Like, it's, it's a very direct call to that in some ways. But also Horus is fucking weird and experimental in the way Isa Takahata was throughout his career, and it will go on kind of interesting avant-garde tangents. And I felt like that the way Gundam does it feels like one of the avant-garde tangents that Takahata would do, and I just felt like they were bringing some of that in here. So I, like, directly enough that I do assume it, it's, a, it's an influence on this, because this is ten years later, and Horace would have been an influence on a lot of things at this point. Um, but, like... Uh, that is the main association I made, but I was, it's definitely like a sit up and notice moment. What's interesting is that again, the show does not say the word new type. And if there is foreshadowing for it, I missed it. And I assume you know where it is because you've seen the show three times. Yes. And it's, it's, I think it's something where you're, I think you're kind of meant to miss it. And so, I mean, because I'll just say the first time it comes up, is way back the first time we meet Matilda. She comes onto the ship and she's talking to the white base crew and she's talking to Amro and she says, you must be some kind of like, like I don't know how you do what you do, Amro. You must be some kind of Esper, which Esper is like, it just means psychic. And I've never encountered right. that word. Like it comes from like ESP, extrasensory perception. I've never seen that word used in anything other than anime. So I don't know why it doesn't get translated because I feel like it's a Japanese English word. Um, but, but she says that, and then there are just a couple of moments of when, like, you know, when Mirai says to Bright when they're discussing whether or not to take Amuro off of the Gundam, um, that I get the sense that there's something special about him. Like, that's more than just, he seems like he's good at this, because also Mirai, as we, we get some hints of it in some of these episodes also, like, Mirai has some sort of weird, like, premonitions also in different parts of the show like Mirai has a moment where she has a premonition of Matilda dying because when in the episode where Matilda dies she just comes up on the deck uh Mirai looks at her and Mirai just gets this really shocked look on her face for no reason and then just kind of wipes it off um and so all the there's a these little moments pieced throughout the show that again I think the first time through and the first time I watched it I didn't pick it up really um you're meant to kind of kind of dismiss it and then on a second viewing, it all kind of comes into place. And you're like, oh, this has actually been here the whole time. It's just nobody has known what it was. And so we, so nobody has had a way to refer to it and kind of make it more explicit. And I like the way that Gundam handles it that way. I do too. But I will say I had to think about it for a little bit. Because getting to this point where they are starting to seed... That there is something like genetically, I don't know how it works, but something like different with Amuro that gives him the power to do these things he's doing. And it's not just he got better and better and more skillful. That at first threw me for a little of a loop to think about that. Because I was trying to decide, especially introducing it this late in the game, There's that could very easily feel like a narrative betrayal. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like that could in lesser hands feel like a cop-out. And I don't think it does. And I think it's exactly what you're saying. That even if you're not noticing the foreshadowing, it is there. It is not completely out of left field. But I think it's also important that our primary POV of Gundam is Amuro. And Amuro doesn't know about it. Yes. And so like his in it, like him meeting Lala and, and even though he has been steeped in this because he's using whatever this power is, 
him recognizing it for the first time, that being the first time the audience truly recognizes it, I do think is smart. And the more I think about it, the more I like it. But it is like, it does intentionally throw you for a loop. Amuro is being thrown for a loop. I think it is the right decision. But it is a bold one, and especially this close to the end. That's why. I, that's part of why I had that text to you, Sean. I'm like, how the fuck are there five episodes left? Because they have just, especially in the Shar and Sela episode, where you are full-on learning that Shar's entire plan involves picking up his father's mantle to try to build a nation that can like bring these powers out in people and like it is this central to it like it's a huge bomb to drop on the audience but that's part of why i like that they introduce it with the weird shit first exposition second yes yeah and i think and i like the way that because gundam will continue to like this show chooses to represent the new type stuff in weird ways that are hard to grasp because i think like the concept is something that's meant to be something that you can't actually understand, right? Because it's it's something that's beyond human, um, and I like the way that the show chooses to represent it in very weird, esoteric ways. So obviously we'll, we'll yes. get I'm also now, it. Sean, I'm at a point where I totally understand what you mean when you say everyone talks about Evangelion, but Gundam did all this shit first. Mm-hmm. Because we've now, t- like, again, I have not seen Evangelion, but through the ether I know certain things it is famous for. I believe we've checked just about every box on the things Evangelion is famous for. Gundam did twenty five years earlier. Yes, yeah, it's yeah, it's exactly okay. some of this stuff is is some of that stuff that's like, you know, and Ava's like a good show and worth watching. It does its own stuff. I'm not for putting sure. it down. I'm just like the the reputation of it. Is yes, all but yeah, about. if you're someone who's never seen Mobile Suit Gundam or Ultraman and like the, that some of that stuff, and you watch Ava, of course you're going to think it did all that stuff first. But like, I mean. Uh, uh, Hideaki Anno would be the first person to tell you that he was hugely oh, yeah. <laughs> like Gundam was hugely influential to him in his career. Um, it's nothing. It's Ava. Ava came out here before Gundam did. Like yes. that's just like ob- the, Ava has always been more popular in the West than Gundam has. Yeah. So like that's we're we're it, talking about episodes. Actually, we're like this stretch of episodes is the stretch of episodes that on its original airing runs into nine eleven. And so then there's like an eight month gap or something from um, I think it's Duel in Texas and the Sharon Sailor episode have a huge gap between them from the original English airing because yeah. uh, the Duel in Texas came out on September 10th, 2001. So Jesus, and you mean it's Cartoon Network American airing? Yes. So yeah. like, which is like the first like time that most people would have seen Mobile Suit Gundam was that's when that would have been. Um, which is man, this show had bad luck when it aired in Japan and America, didn't it? Yes. Yeah. It's very weird. Um. So yeah, yes. so that's the some of that Lala stuff. Also, though, in because there's another whole plot line that's going through with this side six stuff because this is also um, like Mirai's kind of set of episodes where she has a lot of stuff here because we learned in Jaburo that she has a fiance because she's Mirai Yashima. She's the daughter of like a famous politician and businessman, which is stuff that you kind of hear around the edges about her character. That's kind of how we're introduced to her in episode two is the captain knows who she is or who her family is when the, the captain, like the original captain of the white base knows who her family was. Um, and so now we find out that she had an arranged marriage with this guy, Cameron Bloom, which is a I like I like the name Cameron Bloom because it's a very normal name. And so Cameron Bloom is on the ship with Bright Noah and Slegger Law um and Sailor Mass. It is like and here's Cameron, uh, which is great. Uh but yeah, so we have this whole other subplot of Mirai kinda having to navigate her own feelings between him, 
um, bright because there's obviously a thing between her and bright like there has been for a while if it's not been focused on and then this new weird dude slegger who's just kind of hitting on every single woman he sees and is this weird alpha male kind of figure how do you feel about all this stuff it's interesting I, I like it a lot and part of what I like about the plot with with Cameron Bloom which I agree it is relatively normal it's still like five degrees off from a name you would actually give someone and so that's what makes it fit perfectly in with all this uh, it's just not 90 degrees off the way Slegger Law is. Yes. You know? um, but again, I have... Uh, all my favorite baby names now are from Gundam. You know, I just, I'm going to name my kids Job John Lack and Slegger Law Lack. <laughs> Scott no. Slegger's such a good name. You know, anyway, but what I like about Cameron is that he's a good dude. Yeah. Like, the, 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 the tension they build between him and Mirai is not anything that is wrong with either of them really it is a fundamental incompatibility in what they kind of want and where they are in life and that Mirai again like this is for every member of the crew we've had these moments where they encounter their own off ramps you know which is Amuro early on in the coming home episode um Kai in the episode with uh Miharu and everything there where he could have just stayed in that Ireland area you have um, Sela in an upcoming episode, Shar trying to get her to tank an off-ramp, you know. But they have all become part of this crew and they don't want to leave. And that's, this is, um, why am I forgetting her name? Mihar- I, I'm stuck on Miharu, it's Mirai. There we go, yes. sorry. <laughs> I almost wanted to call her Mitsuru for a second. That's not it. Yeah, that's so definitely Mirai, not No, but Mirai getting her own moment here where she has an off-ramp as well. She doesn't even have to be at war at all. She could be living on side six with Cameron Bloom and completely detached from all of this. And what it shines a light on is sort of one of the larger themes of the side six episodes, which is the pacifism of side six and refusing to take a stand. And that if Cameron has an ultimate weakness, it's that he isn't taking a stand. He does want to help the white base out because Mirai is there. But Mirai wants to end this war. Cameron kind of wants to propagate the non-aggression of side six, which ultimately is not really helpful to anyone. No, and you have that moment when Char, another great Char moment when he's leaving side six and Cameron's there and Cameron's kind of being petty and like, I like, please get off side six now. We, we don't want you people here. And then Char's like, hey, don't get too uppity, Cameron Bloom. Like the only reason why side six is able to be neutral is because it's convenient for us. As soon as Zeon decides the side six, like its neutrality is not useful, we will fucking kill all of you. So, you know, like, like, yeah, side six is neutral only because it's convenient for the powers that be that it is neutral. And, and like it, it's neutrality is a problem. Like this is not a small confrontation. This is a war that has killed half of the human population over the course of its fighting. Um, so like in that context, side six passivity is problematic. You know, it's like, yeah. this is a war that needs to be finished and it probably should be won by the people who aren't yelling Sig Zeon and our weird space Nazi people. Exactly. It's, it's mobile suit Gundam is anti-war in a lot of ways, but it's also very realist in the sense of like, if there's gonna be a war, pick a fucking side and do something. Because yeah. um, one of the worst things you can do, as we've learned in politics recently, is centrism. Yeah, and, so, and it's you know it's that old adage that the only way like the only way for evil to succeed is for good people to do nothing, and like that's kind of the situation that Cameron Bloom is in. Like he has nothing wrong about this dude. 
Um, he, you know, he's clearly a nice guy. And in a, and in a world where the one year war never happened, there would be probably nothing really wrong with him. Um, but in this scenario, he's not doing anything to help anything, and that's a problem when when all this tragedy is happening. Are you surprised he lives? I I constantly forget that he doesn't die. In my memory, yeah. he fucking gets blasted. Um, in that because there's the part where he flies out with the ship, um, and to kind of help shield the white base, and he kind of keeps on pushing it to the limit. Um, and and in my memory, the first time I watched it, in my memory, for every reason, he died in that section. I think because that feels like the thing Gundam normally would do. But I like that he doesn't die because I think that makes it way like that's in many ways even more cruel because that makes it so much harder for Mirai. Um, because yeah. if he was just dead, that possible future for herself would be literally completely cut off. Instead, it's a thing that she actively has to keep at bay. Like she has to fight any desire to go back to this guy um, and like make that very easy choice to live that life. And I think that's probably why Tomino didn't kill him off because it's so much more cruel not to kill that dude to our cast of characters. Yes, I agree. I totally agree. So, but it is like, it feels like they are setting up the kind of death that we see in other episodes and we're about to see with, with Slegger in the next set. But yes. Um, anything else to say about the side six episodes? I like him a lot. It's such a good, it's, it's such a unique feeling set of episodes for Gundam. Like there's nothing else in the show that feels quite like what happens with side six, um, both aesthetically and just like narratively kind of some of the places they push it. It's very cool. Um, I like this stretch a lot. I do too. But then we get the battle of Solomon, yes, which is really the first full blown giant battle we get thrown in the center of because there is the Odessa day stuff. But we mostly just see our characters' little parts in it. We don't see the full-scale war. In fact, it specifically elides it with the narrator. This is two full episodes, balls to the wall, giant battle scene. Pretty much from like the beginning of that episode, Glory of Solomon, to the end of the Big Zam attack episode. Like It is the battle, the war. You see the whole thing. A ton of shit goes down. People die. It concludes with our first big insert song in Gundam. It's yes. wild. And yeah. It's so good. Yeah, because just like so much shit happens in these episodes. So one, we have um a character I personally love a lot, Dozel Zabi, my big weird scarred Zabi man who's just like he he's sort of a a Ramba Rao esque figure in that you see clearly that like he cares about the people that fight for him and he's like trying to make the best choices for them possible. Um, especially when he decides, you know, when the big Zam makes his last stand, like he decides to kind of do it alone and kind of go down with the ship, but have everybody else evacuate. And so he clearly cares. He's very caring towards all the civilians on his base too. Yes. And he has, um, a wife and daughter, Mineva Zabi, who Mineva is an important character for the future of the Gundam franchise because they, they escape. And so you have this one little Zabi girl baby. Um, and so, and I, there's a, a, that beautiful little touching character moment where he's with his, his wife and telling her like, Hey, get ready like if something happens we're gonna have everybody escape in capsules and when he's talking to her Mineva wakes up and starts crying because he's this big dumb guy and he just like every line he says he kind of shouts a little bit um and so he wakes up the baby and I like that moment but then also I just like all the preparations that Dozel has to make on Solomon and so you have the one guy telling him like oh we have the the big Zam here which 
Big Zam, what a good name. Such good. It's a big thing. It's a Zam. It's the Big Zam. Um, and so they have the Big Zam, which is another experimental mobile armor. And Dozel's just like, why do we have that thing? Like, why don't... How come Gearing isn't just giving us, like, 20, do- like, Rick Doms? Like, 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 cool. Yeah, we have a big experimental thing. But, and this is one of the things where you start to see the downfall of Xeon is they get so spooked by the Gundam that they're just wasting all their resources building, like, a million different individual projects instead of just having, here's a shit ton of these, like, goofs or Rick Doms or whatever it is you just settled on. Whereas the Federation, they have their Gundam. The Gundam's cool, but we see that they have taken the Gundam and made a mass-produced version of it called the GM, which is one of their, the, the Federation mobile suits. And so the Federation just has a million of these fucking, like, rip-off Gundam things, which is what they need. It's, it's not about we have, like, the one really good machine you need a shit ton of machines. You need a lot of stuff to fight with. And Dozel just has almost nothing other than they got the Big Zam. And that's like what he has to fight with. And the Big Zam is very good. Just not enough in the end. But yes, no, I love Dozel Zabi too. I love, I mean, all of these battles and the big encounters work when you have a really clear antagonist at the center of it. And this is another case of having Dozel there really works. We don't know him extremely well. But he is, I think, a very effective antagonist, and I love his presence in these two episodes as the big force to overcome, and a lot of crazy shit goes down. But I do love having that side, and then it, it still feels human. Like, like Dozel is not someone you want ultimately in power, because he is from the family of space Nazis, but he feels like a real person with real motivations, and also genuine good qualities in him as well. Yeah, so I, I like him a lot, um... Because he also has a lot of good stuff in the origin prequels, and he's very good in that also. Um, so yeah, so you have all that. Um, I also just like that Zeon is holed up in this giant like asteroid base. Like they they hollowed out this asteroid, made a big base, and called it Solomon because Zeon like Zeon is very problematic politically, but they've just got such a good sense for names. The big Zam, the space based Solomon, like it's just good shit. Um, but then you have the whole assembled fleet of the Federation and they have their GMs. They also have, this is something that I always forget that these appear so late. Um, one of my personal favorite, I guess they're technically mobile suits, which are the balls, which are just the big spheres with huge fucking cannons on the top and little tiny arms, which I think they're basically in the lore. They're supposed to be like the precursor to the mobile suit that the Federation had. Um, but you don't see them until this point. And so there's just these big fucking metal spheres with cannons on them. And it's such a good, dumb design. Um, and, and yeah, it's just this massive fleet in the white bases in the middle of it. And you have absolutely everybody out there. You have Amro's fucking shit up. Kai is fucking shit up. Sailor's fucking shit up. Hayato does his best. Um, and uh, Slugger Law is out there fucking shit up. And, and this is where you get that full sense of... Because of how big the scale is, you better you get a better sense of how effective the white base is as a full crew, as a full like fighting unit. Because their ability to kind of organize and take down enemies, it's not just that Amro is really good; it's everybody is kicking ass. Like Kai takes down like three or four mobile suits in this fight. You know, Sayla takes down a bunch in the G Fighter, and that's an aspect I really like is being able to see everybody in one episode contribute so much. Absolutely. This episode also has one of my, well, the first, both of these episodes, but the first one, The Glory of Solomon, has one of my favorite moments of just, I don't know, a little artistic panache, where it's after the episode break, our favorite little moment of, choo! Yeah. 
you have the battle going on and the narrator comes in. And I took notes down on what the narrator said because this is one of my favorite pieces of writing in Gundam so far. He says, Life or death, no one knows the outcome until the very end. The only certainty is that with every beautiful sparkle in the sky, people, or even hundreds of them, are becoming debris littered through space. Whoa! Sean, that... Yeah. Whoa, that is a that is a piece of writing right there, my friend. Wow. Yeah, that's that's like peak Gundam. Like that's what that's that's what Gundam is, is that idea of like, oh yeah, like this like there's something very cool about seeing this giant space fight with lasers, and then you remember, oh, and then like like a hundred people just died because that that fucking space cruiser just exploded. Oh right, this is fucked up. And I think that piece of narration is what brings us out to like from yep. the battle out out to the full federation forces the the main fleet that did the run around around luna 2 what do they have planned and we meet the big weapon in this episode the solar system mm-hmm. which uh, helps deplete zeon's forces now sean i'm gonna have to ask you to give me the big technical explanation on what the solar system is because i feel like i got most of it it's this big mirror system that they're using to reflect a giant blast onto them but I would. I, there's so much technical stuff behind this, and you tend to know what it is. So I want to know the big technical okay. analysis of the solar system. So the solar system is the execution of a. An, a there's a. There's an old legend about the Greek scientist Archimedes that he was able to create a death ray using mirrors to basically light ships on fire. I believe the MythBusters ultimately proved that that was not something that could have been done, and like it could could not have been done with that technology. Probably couldn't be done with our technology. It's been a while since I saw that MythBusters episode, so I don't remember what they concluded. But anyways, there's like an, it's an old myth that Archimedes was like created this device to burn ships using mirrors, um, and that's I think just the basic concept of the solar system is they they are able to execute on that idea one because they're in space and so the atmosphere does not absorb. Um, the most of the solar radiation, which is what, you know, this is the only way we're even able to live on Earth is because our atmosphere absorbs most of the solar radiation. Um, and so they're out in space and they just have like a hundred of these massive mirrors attached to satellites. And so they're not reflecting a laser. They're just reflecting the sunlight at a focused point. And so you see they oh. have... Um, when they cut to like the sort of operating center for the solar system, they have all these scientists with like this, um, like visual of all the mirrors and it shows that they're going to align them so that the sunlight hits a singular point at Solomon, which is why it doesn't just blow up everything along the way is they're aiming it. So it kind of converges at one point and it's basically like, you know, it's like burning ants with a magnifying glass, only instead of an ant, it's an asteroid base. Instead of a magnifying glass, it's a million giant solar panels, and they're all floating in space and being aimed with, like, super precise mathematical accuracy. And that's what they use to just blow a massive hole into the side of, of Solomon and also disintegrate a bunch of the Xeon fleet. It's pretty wild. If I'm not mistaken, the whole mirror array thing, though, we also see on the different side bases have something like that to create light or something? Because I know in Texas we see that. Um, yeah, so they have, yes, yeah, so the the, um, 
the the space colonies have uh, mirrors that they use to. I think probably that they also use it to like power stuff. But that's also how they generate a lot of their light. Um, and that's the thing. That's what detail that we learned about the Texas colony is that the mirrors in a battle got misaligned, and so that's why the Texas colony is all fucked up in the middle. Is because the ecosystem's totally destroyed because it does is not getting the right amount of sunlight either it's getting too much or too little or however much and it's just destroyed the ecosystem entirely because they're using sun or giant mirrors to do that so yeah it's probably that's a good point it probably is the same kind of mirror they would use on space colonies but they just like assembled a giant array of them to create a, a beam well because i really like that implication that this is something the federation built for peaceful purposes to assist living in space and they are now using a modified version of it to create death on a massive scale like that is like very human history 101 right there yes. you know yeah so yeah the, the the federation has assembled this giant death ray made out of like the sunbeams um and they just blast the shit out of solomon and like solomon was already like probably going to fall because they were understaffed but this is like the deciding blow that pushes dozol completely into a corner because the integrity of of the Solomon base is now compromised and Amuro is able to get inside because of it. Because at this point, you he has called in reinforcements, he's called in Kaecilia. We see in one of these episodes, Shar even gets the call and is on his way, but they're all too far away. Yes. Because the Federation was just too well prepared for this. Dozel was too understaffed. Zeon was too uh, egotistical, basically, for this. They were too full of themselves. And now it's all falling and we get to the second half of this battle. And I feel like here, Sean, we should probably take a pause and talk about Sregachui, Slegger Law. Yes. And who this character is, because he's a really interesting character in Gundam to me. He obviously dies in this episode, and we'll talk. He's the big death of this two-part battle. I mean, Dozel also, but Dozel's not one of our uh, ostensible heroes. Slegger's an interesting character, and I still am not entirely sure how I feel about him, and I feel like that might also be entirely by design. Yeah. When he was introduced, it totally made me think of, there is, one of my favorite TV shows is the show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which was on the CW, and it's that show, it's a musical show, so they had songs in every episode, and near the end of the second season, they introduced this new character, uh, Nathaniel, who becomes one of the main characters of the show, and is a really great character, but when you meet him, you think he's just... This, like, kind of annoying, you know, blonde pretty boy who's, like, introduced to, like, boost the show's ratings. And they make it a joke by having a song called Who's the New Guy? We Don't Like Him. And it's all about, like, the meta of that. And I totally was singing that song in my head when we met Slegger. Because that's kind of what it feels like. But, of course, Mobile Suit Gundam is smarter than the, than the average show. And so I think he becomes more than that character. But we never get to a point where we are fully, I feel like, meant to like Slegger, where we are meant to like fully trust him or know exactly who he is. He has this really weird dynamic in that he is the oldest, you know, military man on the ship. He has more experience than Bright. He's been there longer. He's kind of talking over people. He does sort of ingratiate himself into the crew, but only so much. He's also harassing people and hitting on people. He literally slaps Mirai. I think he slaps, he slaps several people. I forget yeah. all who he slaps. But like, and then he does have a heroic death. He has a kind of out of left field romance with Mirai before his death. He's a really interesting character, and I'm curious what your take on him is, having sat with the character for longer. Yeah, I th I think his role in the show is utterly fascinating because because one, it is this like, what if like a normal military officer was part of the white base crew, is part of like yeah. the point of him, it's like. 
we are we have sat with all of these kids and like we've only had the only people um that were like active characters on the show that were actually members of the military that are on the white base crew are bright and ryu and ryu had had like four months of training or whatever as a, he had never seen combat he had only been in simulations as a fighter pilot um, and then Bright was like an officer in training kind of guy who was like never really did much, and obviously was like very bright. He he ha Bright, but he went to a he went to a military academy, all that kind of stuff. So like in theory, he knows what to do, but he doesn't actually have the experience. And then you have Slugger Law, who is a lieutenant. He's he's the same rank as Bright is. Um, Bright obviously technically outranks him because Bright is the captain of the vessel, um, so Bright can give him orders. But in terms of the military hierarchy, he's technically the same rank as Bright. He's much older than any of these people. Um, and he has way more combat experience. So in some ways, like, he's, like, a reliable character to have around in that sense. Like, he, he's the, one of the reasons why they're able to fight off Char um, in the Zanzibar in the episode um, when they, they go into orbit is because he's really good at uh, manning the guns. And he actually gives Bright some advice of, like, hey, like, let's use our inertia to keep on going forward, spin the ship around, and I'll man the main guns and try to hit the Zanzibar that way um, and all that kind of So he's got that experience and he's got that talent. But at the same time, he's sort of like crude and boorish in this very kind of like, you know, military brat kind of way of like, you get the sense that this guy probably, his dad was in the military, his whole family has been in this, like that kind of situation. He's grown up in that kind of culture. Um, So he's definitely an asshole in many ways. Uh, When he slights Mirai, like that's one of those like really shocking moments on the show. Even if like, because the the reason he slaps, slaps Mirai is because that's when Cameron's saying, hey, I will get in the ship. I will help shield the white base. And Mirai's saying, no, you don't have to do that. Which is a dumb thing for Mirai to say because like they should take whatever help they can get. And Mirai's letting her personal feelings get in the way of the safety of the white base. And so like, that's not a reason to slap somebody but that's like so but i think the point is that slugger law he's an asshole he is not delicate he doesn't kind of know how to treat people in a nice way but he's not necessarily just bad like he's he's Mm -hmm. got good ideas he's got this kind of experience and that little moment you have where mirai and and him have this like weird moment where so mirai is clearly like kind of unhinged because her whole like future plan of eventually marrying Cameron is gone. Like she's thrown that away. She obviously has a thing with bright, but that's probably too like serious of a, like, like, like her feelings for bright and bright's feelings for her are clearly like too serious and real. And she doesn't want to actually move on those. Cause that's scary. And so then you have this big fuck boy just here hitting on everybody. And so like her going to him in that moment of like extreme loneliness and emotional vulnerability makes a lot of sense to me. And I like that his reaction to that of being like, you don't know what you're doing right now. Like they were too, this is too emotionally charged and he tries to put distance between them. There's something really interesting between that moment of like it. The, the character dynamics there feel so, like, real to me. They're not... It's not, like, staged TV romance. It feels like this is the kind of shit that, like, gets people into bad relationships in real life and that kind of stuff. Um, and the way that he kind of fits in that dynamic, I think you're right. That I don't think you're supposed to have a, like, so totally settled feeling on, like, pro-slugger law, like, no-slugger law, like is this guy good or bad but his like his dynamic nature in the middle of the cast and what he does to kind of change the dynamic of the ship 
of we are now a part of the military. This is like this is the culture and the world that we are now a part of because we are official part of these forces. He is such a necessary part of the show. I agree. And I and I think the episode has all of that. And I think the ending with the insert song, which is gorgeous, and is also very contemplative, and I think you have a lot of characters not sure how they're feeling. They're, yeah. it's Because it is this big victory. They lost a crew member. That's sad. They barely even knew this guy, though, which is a different kind of sad. And, and you're, you're sitting with all of that. And it is something I love that this episode does, is it just gives you that two or three minutes at the end of the episode to sit with it you know where the show invites you to sit in those feelings and in the middle we get the battle with the big zam which is fucking crazy it's so good i mean one just the build-up to it where you have amuro like going through the corridors of solomon and he keeps on hearing on the radio like these other GMs and balls encountering the big Zam and just getting immediately evaporated and, and screaming like, it's a monster! And I'm just like, I, what the hell is going on? I need to check this out. And there's one shot in particular of him coming across like the melted, like the half-melted remains of a bunch of different mobile suits, of mobile suits in like the big Zam's wake. And that's just a really great shot and moment of like, it goes like pseudo like space horror for a second of of like oh my god like what the fuck is doing sh- this to all these things and and it's the big zam it's our big it's the big egg with legs is basically what the big zam looks like but god is it cool it's so cool it is so overwhelmingly powerful and then the way Amro and Slegger beat him where they, they do this very risky maneuver. They get in close. The Zam pulls off the cockpit, which like rips off the part of the G-Fighter where like you see the Gundam's face. And and Slugger is just ejected into space. And then Amuro, the, this, the, the series of shots where he gets out in the Gundam, pulls out the beam saber, jumps up, is, is up above the big Zam, and then comes down... I rewound. I rewatched that like five times in a row. Uh-huh. It's so good because I, for a second, I thought they were cutting to the, um, the, uh, the mid. What do you call the it? Eye the eye catch. The eye catch again because it is the same as that first shot where you go really close in on the hilt as he's pulling it out. But it's and so it starts with like basically that same shot is in the eye catch, but then it's in the full episode and he jumps up and there's the big hero shot and he comes down on it. Uh, it's nuts. And it, it really is what we've talked about before with this show, where when it does a big action moment, it can do it in just a couple of shots, like just a couple of frames sometimes, and it is so tight and impactful, and good God, it's a it's a great action beat. And also one where you're like, right, there's something up with this Amuro kid, because that was fucking insane what he just pulled off. Yeah, because it's also, I think it's like a really good payoff of like the modular nature of all the Gundam stuff, of where they, you know... The Gundam, like one way that Gundam does like to save time and budget is by reusing the docking animation in the middle of episodes, um, which is fine. Like every anime show needs to do stuff like that. So they, but they dock in the middle of, of that fight and then go up from below the big Zam and try to shoot from under it. And I like because it it's also because then the cockpit it gets grabbed and but then Amuro while they're still docked grabs the the beam rifle with the Gundam and starts shooting the beam rifle up under the Big Zam, which was part of their strategy. So he gets a couple of blows under the Big Zam and kind of penetrates its, like, undercarriage. And then that's when Slugger Log gets fucking ripped into space. 
Amro's like, Slugger Law, you killed him! And then he ejects, jumps up. Yeah, big, like, wide hero shot comes down on the big Zam. But then you get Dozel Zabi doing the most badass fucking thing ever, which he just climbs on top of the big Zam in a spacesuit with a fucking assault rifle and just starts shouting, you will not defeat me, you will not defeat me, as he just shoots the Gundam with a fucking assault rifle. And then Amro's looking at him and is like, what is that guy doing? And then that's when Amro gets his weird premonition or like new type thing where he sees this giant like pulsating black purple shadow behind Dozel Zabi that's just like the some sort of like manifestation of this guy's rage and just like power and and Amuro is so intimidated by it at first that he just like fucking explodes the entire big Zam just to like kill this one guy and it's such a just shocking like powerful sequence of events and and that that just that moment where Dozel just decides to just get up on the fucking big Zam and start shooting the Gundam is such a cool idea that that's while we have not known this guy for very long that so sums up who this person is that like like this is how far he will take it like those Zabi fighting for the wrong side but that dude is legit as fuck like that that's that's a guy that will go like to the nth degree to do what he needs to do for to fight in this war it's uh it's very very good as I said before, the end of the episode with the insert song and just the contemplative nature of that ending, I think is beautiful and really, really powerful. And then, uh, here's the thing, Sean, we've talked about a lot of good stuff today. We haven't come to my favorite two episodes yet Mm -hmm. because these last two, a duel in Texas and reunion, Char and Sela. Oh my God, they're good. Yes. Because I just want to say, you know, The Duel in Texas is a cool name for an episode of television when that's a name for, like, you know, a Western show or something. It's an absurdly cool name for the title of an episode that is a mech sci-fi show. And I just remember so distinctly the first time I watched the show and getting to The Duel in Texas and being like, that sounds so cool. That's yes. such an awesome title. And The Duel in Texas is one of my all-time favorite Gundam episodes. It is just just an incredible... It's, it's one of the most, I think, like well-directed, well-put-together episodes. Some of the yes. visual imagery and editing in The Duel in Texas is just incredible. Well, it's, it's, it's so good because it is, it is, there is a literal duel where you have the two big mech, shoot, mech, shoots go at, mech suits go at each other. But that's not that long. Like, that's pretty brief at the end of the episode. What so much of it is, is like the cat and mouse game and the positioning. And you have Amuro going through all of these tunnels. It's kind of like in the previous episode against the Big Zam. But it's even, I think, creepier here where he's trying to get into Texas. And there's all, it's just the, the, the kind of back and forth between them. And, and I have to say here, this is where I have to talk about my favorite Gundam mech. Mm-hmm. Is the Gion Giant. I don't know how you say it. The Gion. It's G-Y-A-N. The Gyan, yeah, which is Makuve, because Makuve comes back here. He gets in the Gyan, and it looks like if a knight from Dark Souls became a Zeon mobile suit. Mm-hmm. It looks like if Solera of Astoria became a fucking Gundam mech, and it is the. It's only in one episode. It doesn't need to be anymore. It's too cool. If it were in any more episodes, it would just overwhelm you. You would have a heart attack because that fucking giant suit with the like domed helmet head and it's a big it's like Makuve literally had it made for him as like a fucking ego project I love it 
I love how this becomes like a full-on sword fight. It's so good. Yes, yeah. The Gyan is another. That's a personal favorite of mine for designs as well. Like it's it's a really popular one too because it's in every game I've played. It's it's one of the suits in Gundam Versus and stuff. Um, the Gyan, yeah. It's such a because it's because it's a really great looking suit and it's also like. 100% the suit that Makave would have made for himself personally. Like, it so speaks to that dude's character that it has, like, a weird fencing beam saber, and it's got this shield, like, kind of buckler shield with a bunch of missiles um, embedded into it. Um, it. Yeah, and just, like, the knight helmet with, like, the little point on top. It's very, very cool. And just everything about this episode... Um, it's like this the buildup in the setup is so good and methodical because this episode opens with the narration of um you know that the white base and everybody are kind of on a mission to mop up the remnants of the forces at Solomon um and and they are around like a they call it the shoal zone but it's uh, like all this debris around where I think it's at side four I want to say is where Texas is whichever side that Texas is at. Um, and they're they're at the text they're around the Texas Space Colony, which was a colony designed to raise livestock and for like leisure. And so you find this is like one of the things about Gundam is not all the space colonies were designed only for people to live on. So the Texas Colony was both like we're growing things and like animals and raising livestock here, but also it was like a sort of like a Gundam universe theme park where you go to like the old west town and all that it's kind like of gundam west world yeah i mean basically that's what it is and you actually you go to it's one it's a really good part of gundam the origin is you there's some stuff set on the texas colony before the war happens and you get to see like what the colony was like uh and it's kind of heyday and it's very cool um so yeah you have all the stuff of like the texas colony is such an atmospheric setting for an episode um, and the space around it that is full of the debris of other space colonies. And then the, the Texas colony itself is was meant to be this kind of leisure park, um, but has now fallen into disrepair. And it's just these like wild fucking windstorms constantly. And most of the vegetation is just dead and decayed. And there's just kind of wreckage all over the place. And that's the area that they're fighting around. And so Makave sets all these traps to lure Amuro into the colony. And those series of shots of Amuro coming up to the colony and there's this wide shot of the Gundam just dwarfed by the scope of how huge the hangar is. And and the Gundam casts this massive long shadow like down into the depths of the hangar of the Texas colony of the entrance. Um, like all of those are some of the most like a beautiful evocative shots I think the show has and then him getting into it and seeing like the wreckage of the colony and how the mirrors have been misaligned and everything like it's just it's it's one of the coolest settings that Gundam has ever arrived at and 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 everything about the Texas colony I think is just astoundingly cool I agree with all of that and I think the specific sequence of events that Makuve's plan is we're going to leave like breadcrumbs in the form of other mobile suits to lead the Gundam in so I can fight him. You know what it reminds me of is Empire Strikes Back. Yes. With Darth Vader trying to get Luke in to fight him, like luring him in and luring him in and the Gundam coming in closer. And the difference here being that Luke didn't have like special psychic powers that allowed him to overcome Vader in that moment. But like, as it depends on how you what you call the Force. But anyway, um, Luke was not a new type. He was a Jedi. Luke has so, not murdered like 200 people 200. the way that Amuro has at this point. Yes, that's, that's very, very true. Um, well, Luke did fire the final blast into the Death Star. That doesn't count. That's not... That's okay. like, like Amuro has personally killed dozens of people 
Um, if you don't want to count like the the hundreds of extra casualties from the battleships he's exploded single handedly. Yes, very true. Okay. Anyway, we're getting off track, but it definitely has that Vader versus Luke vibe. I, it's it's a great duel in part because of everything you said, but also just the the build up to it and learning the setting and going through it. And then the other half of the episode, which then becomes the the final episode of this stretch, is everything with Shar and Lala on the planet. And they're like riding around in a horse and buggy, mm-hmm. which is just, I fucking love Char in a fucking horse and buggy is great. And Char trying to help Makuve, and Makuve is basically doing this just to show up Char. Like, Char has effectively pissed off everyone in the Zeon military and is one by one leading them to their untimely deaths, which may or may not be part of his plan. And mm-hmm. so I think that whole side of it is great. There's just so much drama going on. I agree. I think out of these 13, this is my favorite episode. And just like, just because like, as an episode of television, it is fucking impeccable start to finish in terms of its direction and pace and purpose and where it has everything arranged in the hour, it's or in the half hour, it's really damn good stuff. Yeah. And then you get to the duel, and it's it's so good. Yeah, because this is also where you get introduced to Char's new um, red mobile suit, the Gelgoog. Other also great name. Um, he doesn't do much. He doesn't do much until the second episode, but. He, you know, you just get that. You do get an incredible shot of the Gel of when he gets into the Gelgoog, and uh, a Lala is there in like a jeep, and you get this like almost like 2014 Godzilla style shot of like the Gelgoog from below, from basically what Lala would see, and it's this massive towering thing, and it's a really cool shot. Um, and at the end, he like dives down to stop her from the explosion of Makuve's suit. Yes. Do you remember? That's a great... That's also very Godzilla-esque, I agree. Yeah. Oh, really good stuff, yeah. This is... Oh, God, this is also, I think, the episode where you get Char's line of... Char explains why he never wears the, like, normal suits, the space suits that all the pilots wear. And he just says to the guy that's like, no, I rely on my combat abilities to survive. Like, if I was going to die, a normal suit wouldn't stop it anyway, so I might as well just wear my uniform. And it's just, like, the most Char just, like, bragging fucking asshole great shit um yeah all Shar's stuff in these two episodes is fantastic um but yes then you get the proper duel between Amuro and Makave uh which which is the I think this is like one of the only like proper kind of like sword fight sword fights like that's a more common thing in other Gundam shows generally Amuro just kind of um there's not a lot of like clashing of swords in Gundam it's because I think that's one of the reasons they like they try to keep it more realistic. It's mostly like the other major one you have is with the goof in Ramba Rao. Um, so the track records for sword fights in Mobile Suit Gundam, very, very good, because this one is great. This is also where Amuro starts using, he uses both of the beam sabers at the same time, which is cool. You have a shot which where the Gyan and the Gundam are fighting in front of like these um, oxen that are just like rampant, like, like stampeding away because they're afraid of the Gundam. So you get kind of the perspective um of that as well all just the the shots and the material in the like progression of events of this duel is just some of the best put together stuff in gundam yes and i have just sent you a couple of screen grabs i had from this when i was looking at it the other night yes and they're just so good like just the as you say like the 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 fencing sense of the Gyan I really love because it does look like this big fencer robot and the Gundam is trying to figure out how to fight it I've got a couple here of just them like the the line work and everything in the animation is so freaking good the way they play with the light off of the beam sabers oh man and I do love the point where Amuro just gets both out and is fighting with both of them it is incredible stuff right up there with the Ramba Rall fight I think yeah absolutely you get that great series of events where like because this is where like 
Makuve realizes there's something up with Amuro because this is where he says um, in the narration, like, is his in, are his instincts just really good or is he some new kind of human being? Um, he doesn't use the word new type because they literally say new type in English in Gundam. But he like, you know, this is the first time you like kind of directly set up this idea that there's a there's something else going on here very directly. Um, and so then Makave starts getting more and more desperate. You have that great shot where he's just stabbing furiously at the Gundam and the Gundam's just dodging every single stab he has. And then um, and then Amuro goes in for the kill because oh, then all at the same time you have Lala watching the fight up on the hilltop and Lala's getting all this weird new type stuff as well and like this weird synergy with Amuro and they play it like it's like radio interference or something. Like you get this weird static in the uh, soundtrack and Amuro's like, what the fuck's going on? And Lala's just like, what the hell is happening? And then when Amuro goes in for the kill, that's when there's like, like Lala sends some sort of weird psychic message to him of like, that's enough, stop. And and of course Amuro doesn't quite stop because then he just kind of cuts the gun in half with both the fucking beam sabers. And then Makave gets... Essentially, like this is like a classic kind of iconic line that is quoted a lot in the Gundam community, um, in, particularly in Japan. I've seen it referenced in different shows. Uh, as Makabe is exploding, he says, "Like well, I forget the guy's name, but he's like second in command. It's like make sure you send that vase to Cassilia." It's priceless, and then he explodes, and you just get this white shot of that like beautiful like like Vaz decanter that he's always had with him, um, because he's this weird antiques dude, and then he explodes. It's like, oh my god, it's so good. That's a uh, that's a pretty great light line to go out on. Thinking about the Vaz, yes. <laughs> oh man, it's amazing. I also, while we're talking about the explosion of Makuve, I have to point out something I have not yet mentioned on these episodes, but I have consistently loved about Gundam. The way they animate explosions mm-hmm. on Mobile Suit Gundam is superior to every other explosion I've ever seen because they do it so colorfully and artistically. It's not realistic at all the way they do it, but it is so representative with all these big oranges and purples and pinks and blues, and they, they just billow and billow. You could almost like cut these all out and make a very avant-garde like film out of them. They look almost like a... Like a, like a little, not many people will get this reference, but like some of the little paintings Stan Brackage would do where he was an American like in, experimental filmmaker where he would just paint onto 8mm film strips directly and like make the paint really thick and then when you ran it through a projector it looked like hell exploding on screen. It kind of looks like that to me. I fucking love it. I've never seen anyone animate explosions like they do on this show. Yeah, yeah, they're absolutely fantastic. It, yes, that the shot of the Gelgu flying up and landing right in front of lala to shield her from the explosion is really great because it showcases you know it, like because all of that is silhouetted by this massive orange and purple explosion yeah oh it's so good but then we get the shar and sela episode and i guess here we should talk about finally learning the origins of shar and sela and that shar is space hamlet basically yes so so yeah so shar We'll get back to the Shar and Amuro fight later, but at the, near the end of the episode, he jumps into the car with Sela, and you finally and you get the full explanation. Which Bright also this is like a good bit of plotting that I think helps kind of elide having to explain a lot of this information again later. Is Bright overhears all of this on the comms? Um, but yes, so so the story that Shar tells is they were raised by Jim Baral, the father of Rambaral. Jim Baral's no great name. 
Um, and so that's the, you know that kind of puts together all the stuff we had with Ron Burrell and encountering Sela. And the reason why they were raised by Jim Burrell was because they are actually the son and daughter of Zeon Zoom Daikun, who is the guy who founded the Republic of Zeon, which was what Zeon was before it became a principality. Zeon Zoom Daikun had a philosophy which was that as humans expanded into space, they would eventually reach a new plane of potential and, and become a new kind of human, and he called those new types. And nobody knows like what new type, what that actually really means. That's just like, this is a thing that's going to happen, is what he predicted. Eventually, Zeon Zoom Daikun unexpectedly dies. On his deathbed, he points to Degwin Zabi, the patriarch of the Zabi family. Um, and this is what Jimba Rao tells Char and Sela was that um, that that while well, everybody in, in the, the Degwin Zabi played it off, everyone bought this, that what Zeon was doing was indicating his what who he intended to be his successor. And then Degwin then goes on to turn the Republic into a principality, which is just effectively a dictatorship. Um, but Jimba believes that actually what Zeon Zumdaiken was doing was pointing out the man who killed him. And so that's why Jimba took uh, Shar and Sela, who are actually Caspal Daikum and Artesia Daikum, and have taken took them into his custody to raise them um, under different names on Earth. And then at some point, Shar has joined the Zeon military to get revenge against Zabi. But then he tells Sela that that's not all he's doing, that he's also trying to create... Um, he's trying to live up to his father's legacy and nurture whatever this new type thing is. And so that's part of what he's doing with Lala is that he, at some point he discovered this girl that to him is clearly must be a new type. And we also, I think, can assume that whatever his larger plans, he wants to do something with Zeon past the zombies to further his father's legacy. I kind of got that out of there. Too. Yes. Yeah. And so, and that's, yeah. So, so like for him, defeating the zombies is part of what he wants to do, but it's not like the end game. It's not over with that, because it adds a really important piece of context, which is if because before we all we really knew about Shar's motivations is that he hated the zombies. If that was his goal, he could join the Federation and and help a lot there, right? Yeah. This makes a lot more sense doing it within because he also wants to reshape it and probably reclaim his rightful throne, you know, you mm -hmm. could say. And that is that is my uh, read on it, at least. But yeah, it's Space Hamlet. His his dad died. The dude who killed him took the throne. And he wants that dude dead. And his whole family. It's a little different because it's it's a little more dramatic in a lot of ways. But yes. Uh, and Sela, obviously raised by Jim Morale on Earth, wound up joining the Federation accidentally. <laughs> In uh, episode one of this show And yeah It's uh, it's a really great Exposition dump that does not just feel like An exposition dump in part because they blow Through that whole explanation I think faster than you Said it yes. on this show Yeah it's, but very, it's, it's very efficient and then I just Also love all the the Imagery we get of like Zeon's and Daikun on his like deathbed pointing to Degwin like all of that is really good and then I like it's also while you know, obviously we never met Jimba Rao, it's all narrated in Jimba Rao's voice, like they it's like a voiceover in from this other actor. Um, and so the way they like play all of that, I think it's it's really evocative, but also very efficient. Yes, and it it rewrites so much of the show in so many interesting ways. I was genuinely surprised. I I you know they had been calling her Princess Artesia. 
I didn't know what she was a princess. If she was a princess, I guess that means Shara's a prince. But I had not connected the dots that they were literally the heirs to Zeon. You know? Like, that is such a... I had not thought that big. So I thought it was a really effective reveal in that way. And, man, it... Like, I see why you chose this to be our last episode for this stretch of episodes. Because that lays such an incredible gauntlet. That plus the new type thing and revealing those in tandem. This feels like the right moment to give us all of this. Set such immense stakes for these last somehow five episodes. Yes, yeah, and and it it is it's because then I also just love all the stuff it does with Sayla's character of her like she now kind of realizes that how far gone Char is or Castle to her Castle Nissan um, that that she's never going to be able to probably get him back and bring him to something that's like. A sane way to live a person's life because infiltrating the Xeon military and like rising up the ranks while slowly trying to sabotage them so you can take power back and try to follow in your father's legacy is not a normal thing for a human being to do. Um, but Shar, of course, is not a normal person. Uh, so yeah, no, he wears the fucking. And I also love just the explanation for okay, this is why he wears his incredibly flamboyant mask. Yes, he, he, he discarded his past and because and, it's also like, you know, he and Sayla both have these like very striking blue eyes. So that's, I think, one of the reasons he has to wear the mask is because if anybody sees his eyes, they might realize that he's, he's the uh, son of Zeon Zoom Daikun. I also like that this then makes so much sense of why it's called the Principality of Zeon, but it's led by the Zobbies, which is something the first time I watched the show, I was just so confused by why it would be that way and why yes. it wouldn't be called like the Zobby thing and said it's Zeon. It's like, oh, okay, that's why they took what was a democracy and then took it over and, and twisted it into this, this dictatorship. Um, yeah, so all that stuff, great. I just also love like all of like Bright has some good reactions. I love when... Um, Shar says the word new type and then it cuts to bright. It's like new type. What the fuck are they talking about? Um, and all that's really good. Uh, yeah, like just, it's such a, it's such a dense dump of information, but it's, it's shocking how well Gundam is able to just sort of like push through it and make it all clear and make sense. Absolutely. I want to talk about bright for a second because I, I noted last episode, uh, of weekly suit Gundam, not of mobile suit Gundam. Yeah. That I was really curious where they were going to take Bright in the aftermath of all the death and destruction of the previous set of episodes. Where Bright was literally out of commission, out of like grief and panic for a couple episodes. And it's a subtle thread through these episodes. But I do like that Bright has clearly become a better commander because he is more attentive to his people. Yes. Like that is a recurring theme. You get it a lot in these last few. Because there's something going on with him and Mirai. But I don't think you even have to read it fully romantically. It's also partially just like, I really like the moment where he says, you know, we're in the middle of a battle. I'm not supposed to be talking to you one-on-one, but I can tell something's up. Like, Bright last episode wouldn't have done that for anyone on the ship. Yes, exactly. And, and he does it here. He does it for Sela. He, like, or for, for what happened, it's not for Sela. It's for Frau Bo. He can tell she's, like, getting tired. And so, because that's the thing. That's the contrivance, you could say, that gets him to on the comms to hear the conversation. But it's also a really good character moment of, again, the 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 bright of earlier episodes of Gundam was not attentive or, or smart enough in his attunement to his officers to see that Frau Bo 
could not be pushed any further and that it was healthier to get her off the bridge for a little bit like he consistently does that he's better with Amuro he's better with other characters I like all of that a lot they don't have to shine a heavy light on it but it's there yeah because and I think it's smart because they have so much other material to go through I think it's smart that they don't dedicate like here's like another big Captain Bright episode instead as you say it's just like a lot of smaller things and yeah, like just the imagery of Bright sitting in the captain's chair with the calmed headset on, like that's just a great shot and like it communicates so much about how far this character has come, how just more relaxed and confident he is. Because also at like, I think it's the first episode of this batch, he has this great little moment where um, Amuro is practicing like the docking maneuvers and stuff like that. And he has this thing of like, what's going on, Amuro? Like, how come you can't get this under 17 seconds? And one of the guys in like the crow's nest shouts, says like, oh, come on, Captain Bright. Like it, it's probably actually impossible to get it shorter than that. And he says, even if it's impossible, Amuro can do it. And so his, his going like where he is with Amuro now is he's no longer afraid of Amuro. He has like utmost confidence in what Amuro can do and him like you know no longer being afraid of Amuro's like potential and what Amuro is capable of and instead like kind of embracing him um is really good and yeah like it's it's a subtle thing throughout these episodes but it's definitely there um and 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 it feels like Captain Bright has become the captain that he needs to be yes indeed um and then we do get a final fight with Char and and Amuro but it's a little, it's not quite a fight. It's not a duel. They don't really, they don't like enter the same frame. It is Char testing Amuro. He's like, there's something up with this kid. Let me fire a bunch of shots. No one could possibly dodge. Shit, he dodged all of them. Oh, fuck. Like, and that's basically how that fight goes. I think it's a really interesting fight. And I, I liked it a lot. Because it also, it's such, it's, it's not something I would have predicted that, you know, you start out the series, episodes one through five, you have a duel with Char in every episode and Amuro is way behind and he's only surviving by the skin of his teeth because the Gundam has better armor, right? Yeah. You go many episodes ahead, he's going to fight Char again and he's lapped Char yeah. already. Like that's one of the incredible things. That is not something I would have expected. And now, now for this final five, I feel like the drama is really going to be in what is Char going to do to overcome Amuro, not the other way around? Yep. And that, to me, is kind of a more interesting version of this as a climax. Yeah, it's something I love is that you don't ever get the like the the fight between Amuro and Char where they're evenly matched somewhere in the middle. It's yeah, it's by the time they've met again, Amuro is so far beyond what Char is able to do as a mobile suit pilot. Even if Char is clearly probably it's still like a better tactician on a bigger level like Amuro part of like what makes Amuro so effective is Amuro's like so focused on what's right in front of him and like whoever is in front of him is just going to die immediately because Amuro is just that good at piloting the Gundam at this point um but yeah like by the time you get to this duel Char or like you know I mean it's not a really duel because Char just has the drop on him sure like Amuro is confused and lost in the Texas colony and he's just kind of you know, perplexed by all the weird Lala stuff that's happening because you have that great moment where um, Lala and Armor are both like feeling things out as new types, and then Lala just said, "Mao's like ah, mu no," and then it cuts to Lala or to Amuro, he's going la la, and then he they he they kind of feel each other, and then he kind of follows her, and so then Shar gets the drop on him, and as he said, Amuro is immediately able to dodge a shot from the back from more or less point blank range that should have just a been impossible for anyone to dodge he dodges that 
Char goes into hiding. Amro doesn't know where he is, and then, but very quickly, Amro is able to piece out where Char is, get the drop on Char, disable Char's mobile suit, um, like destroy his weapons, and, and like break, like basically break one of the Gelgu's arms. And then Char only like is barely barely manages to escape. Has to set off a like a dummy mobile suit explosion to try to slow Char or to slow Amro down, and then abandon the Gelgug and get into a car and drive the fuck away. Because he knows that um, that he just can't fight Amro toe to toe. That he needs to come up with a better plan, and that is such a satisfying place to have arrived at, and not have like having not seen the middle point makes it so much more dramatically interesting to have seen. It's like no, by the time these guys encounter again, they are on exactly the opposite foot, and. Like, if anything, the Gelgug is probably a higher performance mobile suit than the Gundam is at this point. Um, but Amuro is able to easily dispatch a Char. Yeah, it is dramatic stuff. And I continue, Sean, to wonder how the hell I'm almost done with this show. And I'm also sad because it's so good. And then I remember there's 50 billion other series of Gundam. So if I want more, there's plenty fucking more where this came from. But still, how the hell are there five episodes left, Sean? It's like I said on the text message is shit gets real, Jonathan. There's a there's you know, if you think that like the phenomenon of like, oh, it feels like they must have spent like five or six episodes in Jabro or something, um, that gets dialed up to eleven, particularly for the last four episodes. There's a lot of stuff that happens. Um before we get to to, to looking ahead, a couple of other things I want to touch on from these episodes um is I think uh, like while Fraubo never quite gets like the Fraubo episode, she has a lot of really interesting character moments in this stretch of episodes where you see, and and it's partially from Fraubo and other characters talking to Amuro about her, how distant they've become and how like it used to be that Amuro and Fraubo would have a couple of scenes together in every single episode. And then all of a sudden you realize they haven't been in the scene together for like three or four episodes in a row. And, and other characters start commenting on that happening. And it's really interesting. Yeah, and I like her. She's taking on a new role on the ship. She's at the comms now. Everyone's shifted around a little bit. I'm I'm still I'm very curious what the payoff with that character is going to be. Especially re her relationship with Amuro. But uh, I I have faith that they'll they'll get the ship there yeah. in the end. Because there's also that really great scene with her in Hayato. After Hayato gets injured in the Battle of Solomon. And she's like helping um, give him a blood transfusion. And they have that talk about where Hayato says... Because Hayato is another character that never quite got like the Hayato episode. And he doesn't... You know, none of the last five episodes are the Hayato episode. Spoiler. Um, that, that would be... There's not enough time to just have the Hayato episode. But he has the thing where he says, you know... All this time I've been hoping and trying to find some way to beat Amuro, to be better than Amuro. And he's always kind of comparing himself to him. And then Frau just has this moment where she looks at him and says, Hayato, don't. Like, he's different from us. He's just yeah. different. And, like, that, how cold that feels is, because it's not wrong, but it also is just, like, there's something about, like, seeing their friendship slowly kind of come undone. Um, is is like one of the very like small sad things that they just pick up on over the course of Gundam and seeing just like she's not wrong like Amuro is different but it feels sad that that is something that causes him to lose sort of this relationship he had yeah anything else Gundam's good new types Gundam's are cool. very good we have one left 
one batch of episodes. Although we should we should just tell everyone our plans. Yes, there will be two more episodes of Weekly Suit Gundam because next time we're going to cover the final five episodes of the series, do what we've done, and then for our final episode, part six, we are going to look at the movie trilogy of recaps that they did. Yes, um, and we'll also, I assume, just do some wrap up material. I still want to do our like list of top ten Gundam names. Yes, from this series. Yeah, we should we should come up with some top ten lists to do. Um, because yes, the name one is good. We should do a top ten list of episodes also because there are there. Are, oh God, yeah. Because I think that would be a fun hard list to do. Um, but yeah, because I'm also I'm very excited to watch the movies because. I've never really properly watched the movies. I've only like seen like kind of skipped through them and seen some of the new bits and rewatched some of my favorite scenes. I never watched all three of them all the way through um, properly. Yeah, so I'm, I, I'm looking forward to do that. I'll tell you, I'm excited to do it because I, I already am at a point where I kind of, I want to see everything again with the context I have now. The movies will be a perfect way to do that. I feel like it'll help me digest the series to see the story again and it'll have a slightly new angle on it, but I'm excited to see it in that way. Um, I've got those movies at the ready and yes, I, th- those will be our last two episodes for now of weekly suit Gundam. So two weeks from now we'll have our, the final five episodes of the series. And then two weeks from that, we will have the three big movies. So exciting stuff to come. Um, but for now, this has been a great set of episodes. Excited to talk about the next one. I am very excited to just go watch the final five. Yes. What about you, Sean? I am. Yeah, th- this, I will say the last Four episodes, like like the the next episode is good, but it's the last four episodes are spectacularly good. I will say, Jonathan, just in case, like I don't know how you're planning on watching the episodes. Make sure you watch episodes forty and forty one together, and forty two and forty three together, because those are two parters. My plan was just to do all five. Yes, honestly, yeah, that's what I'm going to sit do. down. Mm-hmm. Okay, I was going to do make a night of it, get a pizza. Do just a two-hour watch-a-thon of Gundam. That's a good idea. But for for listeners, that would be like don't don't stop at like episode forty, or don't stop at episodes forty-two, or like you know make plans where you're only going to have time to watch one of those episodes because those are definitely episodes that you need to watch together because I think they build um, it kind of like the, like maybe not as much as the Solomon one is is quite literally a two-parter, but like they are very much two-part episodes that people should watch together. Very excited for that. I'm very excited. If Jonathan, if you think that we've had some good Gundam names up till now, wait till we get to the Space Fortress of Abawaku, because that's where we're headed on the next episode of Weekly Suit Gundam. And as always, we have to wonder, will you be able to survive? 